I hope you're comfortable. I'm so comfy. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for doing this so much. Hello, Zach. You're one of my best friends in life, for those who don't know. Um, now you know. Now you know. For those who don't know, Lauren O'Brien, fellow high school grad, got to witness me. We got to witness each other in the primes of our lives in awkward uh, middle school years, high school years, teenage years. Going life, to, sure. We were talking about this on the way over here. All the fucking awesome shows we've seen together and yes. like growing up together and like the underground world. <laughs> the underground of the suburbs. Of this, the, <laughs> it, from where we were positioned in the quote unquote suburbs. We did the best we could. With the little we guy. did the best we could. But we did more the little punk than. You, you were, we were, we were together for a lot of the shows. A lot of the shows that I can think of that were like memorable anyway. I feel like I don't want to be like hyperbolic, which I tend to be. I'm very dramatic. Let's go. Um, but I feel like we've seen at minimum, like on the low end, like 30 shows together. But I feel like it's probably higher than that. I think so too. But then the majority of those happened before we were 18. Yeah. I mean, the past few years we have not really been in each other's lives very much. This is true. Which is sad. We're, we're coming back hard yeah. with this podcast <laughs> right now. But, uh... Mic dropping it. At the very least, probably, like, if I had, like, a top ten favorite shows, at least, like, six of them you were there for. Oh, yeah. So, like, we've had some memorable moments. But I feel like if we're going to do a podcast, <laughs> I feel like we have to have, like, a linear explanation of our Oh, no. The, this is friendship. the Death Comes Lifting podcast. We just, like, break glass <laughs> and then jump on it. I need to order. <laughs> I'm just take kidding. our shirts off and just slide into it. We will we'll get. Well, you back know there. me. I'm also all about taking my shirt off and sliding into it. We're stopping. But... We're, we're starting in punk rock. We're in this basement. Where are we? Explain. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So we are in a house venue, uh, which I don't know if that needs explain. Well, I will say explain. it might house venue, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But I will say that at. a house venue might need explained because I was talking to Andy, and he, I told him I was going to a house venue one day, and he was like. What is what is a house venue? Like, kids, do people live there? Kids these days don't know shit about house venues. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a soft boy. He likes, like, Conor Oberst and um, nothing wrong with that. But Sufjan Stevens. Um, also, have to share the best joke of all time, which is that me and Daniel uh, really want to be in a surf punk band called Surf Jam Stevens. And I just, I don't know if y'all in the audience, the audience know the reference Sufjan Stevens, but I just think that's the perfect band name of all time for a surf punk band. Um, so yeah, so we're in a house venue in, in Oakland in Pittsburgh. I won't give you the exact address because you gotta be in the know. You gotta be, you gotta be punk rock. You gotta like be that. punk rock. Basically, if you don't, if you don't know everything, you're not punk rock. <laughs> no, I mean, you could reach out if you, you if could. you need the address. It's reach cool. Out. It's very cool. And uh, it's my first time here actually. So I'm a poser, obviously, but. We're in the basement doing this podcast, and what is the uh, what's the other house venue around here? Well, so this one's called like? Cafe Verona. Cafe Verona, and uh, it's been around I think for like five years. And before that, it was another house venue, but I'm I don't remember the name of it before before this one. Um, there's still like there's a a couple pretty big ones. Um, there's Glove World, which is mm-hmm. down the street. It's like a five minute walk. It used to be called Bossing Say up until like a few months ago. We got new owners. And then there's the Bushnell in another part of Oakland um, that is now called Lavender Town, which again has new owners, new new punk owners. Um, or Lavender rents. Town sounds so nice. Yeah, it's a nice spot. Actually, yeah. that's where the show. So there was supposed to be a show here tonight. Um, there and is then, a show here tonight. Well, there's this show. There's the yeah. Death Comes Lifting show. But there was supposed to be um, a show with like three different bands, and then it got moved to Lavender Town, and now there's like six bands at Lavender Town tonight. So. 
after this. Maybe we'll Maybe. get some. <laughs> I hope yeah. If we finish pumpkin. on time, let's go do it. Um, what time do they go to? Like midnight. Yeah, like midnight. We should be okay. Yeah. Um, and some of my friends are playing. They're really great. So, so yeah. So that's where we're at now. What about is uh, Baby Land still a thing? Baby Land still a thing. It's right? not a house venue. That's not a house venue. It's pretty. Uh, it's a. It's a venue venue. Garage. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like, I like baby DIY Land. venues. Yeah, that's what I mean, like, like a lot of DIY. I mean, there's, uh, I'd say, like, a, a quintessential venue in that sense would be uh, Roboto or the Mr. Roboto Project, which is mm-hmm. in Bloomfield, because um, it's been around for almost 20 years. I mean, they've had big bands play there when they were, like, way smaller. Like, Against Me played there, like, two decades ago. Some really big names. And it's a small, like, art gallery DIY venue. Um that is run by the community. I actually have a lot of friends on the board. So it's really cool. It's like a nonprofit um, type situation. And then there's 222 Ormsby, which has opened up again. Mount Oliver. Yeah, I spent a I've, lot of time there in high school. I've seen a couple bands there since it's been open already. I have not been back since it reopened. It's great. Um, I mean, actually, it's just like you remember. <laughs> Bob and Katrina were going to buy that house and we're going to reopen it. No and um, they actually they were on the short list of people that were going to buy it. And then um, the people who ended up buying it were like friends of the old owners. So That's awesome. Yeah, so I actually would uh, I would love to go to Ormsby again sometime, but some of the best shows I've ever seen were at 220 Ormsby. Um, 222 Ormsby. The, probably my favorite show of all time was... Of all time, ever. I mean, the, up the, there. Okay, like and, top three. And I'm not even, I'm not even the only person to say this. I know like four or five other people that were there who agree that it was like their favorite show That's ever. That's good, where were we at? It was in like 2012 or 2013, and it was The Suicide Machines at 222 Ormsby. For those of you who don't know, they are a hardcore ska band. And um, basically, like, it was just the... Sh- so there was, like, it was a packed house that night. And the band was just, like, right in the middle of everything. Like, crowd surfing, screaming, like, putting the mics up to everybody's faces. The energy was just, like, over-the-top incredible. And it, it just, by far, was, like, one of the best nights of my life. Like, I just remember feeling, like, totally high afterwards. And just being like, this is this is why I love punk rock. Like, it was just really, really incredible. I love those venues, too, those shows now these days, especially, like, we were just talking the other day, I hate going to bigger shows now, like, the energy you get from, like, an underground show, like, a house venue or something like that, so much cooler, you feel so much better about everything, like, your money goes to, like, you see where it goes, you know, you can, like, talk to the band, you see the venues, you see, like, the conditions, these people tour in and everything, you see where your dollar goes versus if you, like, go to an arena, and see a band like that used an to be an arena, yeah, yeah, or like even <laughs> I would like still an go for Beyonce, but Beyonce is always my exception. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely exceptions. I just went to see Ghost last night. Yeah, I saw you seeing. Uh, yeah, are you a like, poser? <laughs> oh, yeah, I might be a poser. No, Ghost is pretty cool. They were cool, and like that's the same venue that's was the Cavelli Center in Youngstown, that's where we saw Rob Zombie and Manson back in the day. And I would still go see Rob Zombie. I'm going to get emotional. There. Is it okay if I get emotional that? on Let's your podcast? Go. <laughs> Let's go. See, all I had to do is bring up Manson. Yeah. And starts crying. No, just like little Zach. Yeah, little you. <laughs> little Lauren. <laughs> yeah. We were cute as hell. We were, yeah. So I feel like that's why I feel like it's a good time to talk about like Let's how go. I met you and like our friends. Let's talk about it. So. Let's bring it back to 79. I, yeah, 79. <laughs> you know, at 2000, back in the old days in 2006. The kids don't know anything. <laughs> Well, it's wild because a lot of people in the DIY scene, like, I'll talk to them and I feel like I'm, and I don't mean this in any type of patronizing or belittling way, but I'll talk to, like, a peer, who I think is a peer in the DIY scene, and they'll be, like, 19 and they're like, oh, I was born in 2000, and I'm like, I haven't. How do you know if somebody's in the DIY scene or not? 
Just like I, they're, I see them at shows a lot, okay. or they're like, yeah. or I they're was, in a band, or they're. I was gonna say, I just I'm not in the DIY scene. I don't think. Well, then come on, come on in. Then we're gonna have to check it out. It's inviting. All right, good. Yeah, I mean, I just frequent uh, house shows, or like if you have a band, or just just start hanging out with me more, and I'll just I, I will. I'll just dub you Doctor DIY. Okay. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna... <laughs> I, I can already see my role in this podcast is going to be wrangling you back in on the subjects that we're talking about. So let's talk about... 100% told you this would happen. Yeah, we knew it. <laughs> you invited me on here. I love that you're yeah. on here. We're going to get into the meat of this soon. 2006, back when we were in like sixth grade. I don't think you knew who I was, but I knew who you were because you were in my social studies class. Remember, Jer- I think Jarabek was in our social... Shout out. Am I allowed to use full names? I mean, I don't <laughs> fucking care. And uh, I think Jake Garcia was in our social studies class. Just setting the scene. I'm just setting the scene for the three people who know those people who might be listening. Our friends. And, um, yeah, but well, I was, I didn't all know. drastically different. Shocker. I didn't know who any of them were. I didn't know who you were either then. And um, I don't really think I'm that different, personally. I don't wear ponchos anymore, like as a fashion statement, but like. <laughs> no, you did a lot of badass shit really early that we're going to get to later and it's going to come yeah. full circle. So, um, um so yeah, t- 2006, and I remember you were friends with Jess, I won't lose, I won't use last names for people that we don't really talk to anymore, you were friends with Jess, and I had a crush on you. I'd never seen the gym in my life by this point. But I way. remember me, this, Zach, picture this, folks, picture this, you had gelled spiked hair. Yes. You were just, like, always wearing, like, a football jersey, because you played football. This was not a poser thing, this I, was not ironic. This I, was... I did, I played football for two years. So, your man himself, Fitness for the Misfits, mm. used to be a jock in middle school. Well, no, I hated all the jocks. I don't know if that counts. I started this, that doesn't count. <laughs> I would, I would testify that I hated it, so that's why I was even more anti-sports after I played than I was before I played. Yeah. Because what does any... Uh, chubby, insecure kid try to do to fit in. I guess I'll play sports like these people and maybe a girl will talk to me. But I guess, yeah, how can you really ever... That's kind of how that worked. How can you really ever criticize something or, like, like, critique something to be a little less negative unless you've really experienced it? So, maybe you are the best person with this message. I can honestly say (laughs) fuck you to all those people (laughs) involved in that program. Um, Anyway, no more teenagers. I had a crush on you. Oh, Um... Who didn't? And uh, just because you were so nice to Jess, I just remember being like, "Aw, nice fucking guy." He's nice, dude. and he has gelled hair. And then, like two minutes later, I got a crush on somebody else. Yeah, that's and, how you uh, were back in the day. That's how I still. Am. That's how you still be. <laughs> um, there's nothing wrong with that. No. Um, I'm a f- free woman. So uh, you do a lot of good things. Yeah. So then it was like two more years before we were friends, and what happened was I was in your uh, study hall class, study hall class, <laughs> where we learned a lot. And the first day I talked to you... Our teacher was a lesbian, I think, right? Is that I don't remember we who our teacher about? was because it was just study hall. Yeah, but she was, like, <laughs> she was like, I think, really, like... She was kind of butchy and mean. I mean, I hope for her, for her sake. That sounds great. Yeah, that's what happened. Um, sounds that was, like that's a, an a important mood, really. detail in the scene. Okay, yeah, you got yeah. the scene. And I was very hyperactive, <laughs> as I still am. And I talked to you for, like, the full length of the class. Like, I feel like... I spoke words before the bell even rang about Kurt Cobain, and you listened to me with your your patient young soul. You listened to me for that full like forty five minutes about me ranting about how Kurt Cobain changed my life and he could change yours too. And, and I don't he's like my Nirvana Lord and Savior. To this day, Jesus <laughs> to this day, I don't like Nirvana. And um, like I don't even think I took a breath that whole class. You just listened to me just rant about Kurt Cobain. I was always a music fan, so I thought, hey, a girl that likes music is pretty cool. Thanks. 
And then yeah, I think the all. next class I let you speak uh, at least once. And I came back with what? Um, and then that's when you started introducing me to specifically, I think this was really the only two in the beginning, which was uh, Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie. Right. And that was also the year that Rob Zombie's Hellbilly Deluxe 2 came out. 2000, what was that? It was like 2007, 2008. We were in eighth grade. Okay. The, the beginning, it was like October of like eighth grade. So it was probably 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember going to Best Buy and being so excited to buy it. Oh. And like, <laughs> like <laughs> just that whole experience. And like with my cash and like being like, mom, you have to drive me to Best Buy. I have to get this CD. And, and listening to it and it just changing my life. Like it was incredible. Dope. Um, Dope. Yeah. And, and then we became instant friends. And that's also the year, I mean, because we were in study hall together, we were also in gym class together. And so that is also where I picture my most purest Zach which is, I was telling you a few days ago, uh, which is in our gym class, doing gym class yoga to, like, a Richard Simmons video or something. It was, like, something really, this like, this person shouldn't be teaching yoga. I feel like they have not studied yoga. <laughs> yeah, our gym teachers were ridiculous And well. you had, like, basketball shorts and, like, one of your socks falling off, and, and you were trying to do downward dog, and it was just the most ridiculous thing. And I just remember being like, this is... This is good people. This is important. This is yeah. This is my yeah. this is my best friend. See, you can start, you can start from humble fitness beginnings, and I didn't change exactly. that. You know, I didn't change that much. I still couldn't do a downward much. dog great right now. I tried. Oh, I can do downward dog. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much essential. But let's go. <laughs> yeah, I gotta believe in yourself. Downward dog right now. Let's do it right now, live. <laughs> but you know, at the same time, like I kind of feel like, like I'm over that phase, right? Like when I was. I just accepted that I was shitty at fitness and like working out and just being in bed. Like I didn't, sports didn't go well. Gym class didn't go well. When I went to the gym, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was just listening to my music, hanging out, like trying to look like I knew what I was doing, looking at other people. Well, just being insecure. You going to the gym, like Jim's act didn't come for a few years after that. And honestly, like I never, and like I'm sure like you probably maybe feel similarly to me, but like I never knew that you were like super insecure or like, you know, felt. Well, of course not. But I guess I, like I that's how every teenage is. boy is. Well, maybe I shouldn't say every, but I, I think feel like I feel is. like when you're a teenager, you are insecure. No but I mean, I thought what. you were like I. I loved that. That's a bold statement. Well, thank so, you. So do I now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not not then. So yeah, so when you started like getting really intensive at the gym and stuff, it was weird, and also like in the beginning, in the early days of Zach and Lauren, I was the one who was really intense about like nutrition and working out. And I wanted to be a nutritionist, and I my dream, like up until I was like nineteen, and it's still like Sam's dream, was for us to create a gym that was like an inclusive space. Death comes lifting before death comes lifting, and like we we would talk about it all the time, and we were very obsessive about it. And like even up until like I left for college, like it wasn't until like literally when I started college that I decided because I I was good to go to school for nutrition. That was like what I was going to do. I remember, yeah. And it was, like, this realization when I was, like, 19, like, about to start college that, like, I have an eating disorder, and I am not in a fit place to teach anybody about health or wellness. Mm. And, like, this is not, this is not my move. Story of my life. Yeah, so, like, it's interesting also that you, I mean, you had, like, a similar, similar experience Mm -hmm. a little bit after me. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I feel like, am, am I supposed to talk more about my experience, or, like, should I... Should I ask you a question? You, there's, no, there's no rules. You can ask me whatever you want. Because um, I don't know, have you talked a lot about that on your podcast? Yeah, we've talked about it before. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to is, I, mean, I have no problem talking about it to anybody that asks, or, you know, we could talk about it now or whatever. But uh, what I was saying before is, like, you can start from a 
totally shitty place in nutrition and fitness and not know anything and then you know kind of end up being all right you know so that's why like I look back on those memories of like you said gym class and like just like like I, I used to shudder at that but yeah. now I'm like I'm like super proud but of that but wouldn't you prefer and I think you this know? is what you're trying to do that you never had to go through those dark stages in between of like treating your body horribly oh, in the opposite yeah. direction yeah that's my I mean like I did every fad diet I like took diet pills. I used to starve myself. I used to, like, work out until I passed out. Like, I treated my body very poorly. And, like, mm-hmm. pretty much all the all the terms, the, the binging and purging and, like, just yeah, really treated thing. my body horribly. And I have, like, still to this day, and it's probably been, like, probably, like, six years since I really was, like, in that space. I still to this day, like, physically, like, I fucked myself up a lot. And mentally, which I think is even even harder to recover from. It's definitely, I mean, uh, my eating disorder still lingers, you know, in the back of my psyche, I'm sure, you know, yeah. the, the binging and the purging and those like kind of, um, habits you fall into, those really terrible habits you fall into still can kind of come creep up on you. And, and I mean, we, I we live in a shit, culture man. that like, honestly, like glorifies all of that. Even yeah. like glorifying, like terrible. I got two hours of sleep last night, like I'm tough. And it's like, that's not okay. Yeah. That's I used to be like you. that too. I used to never sleep at all. Now I'm like, I'm really try to sleep. Yeah. You know? May I used to think that's because I'm getting we're getting old now, but like it's kinda just like it's fucking the truth. <laughs> yeah. Like you need sleep. Like you feel so much better. It's and like I mean drug. that can extend to like to all of us. Everything. I mean like yeah. us watching that documentary on Tuesday, uh about the D C hardcore scene and like listening to about Punk the Capital, right? Yeah, but punk the Capital. Punk yeah. in the Capital, yeah. And uh Modern thinking threat. about people like Ian McKay, who is straight edge and like started the straight edge movement, like yeah, obviously like that can come off really intense, but there's a lot of validity to that, to be clear-headed, to be mm-hmm. your best self. And, like, mm-hmm. I think that that's, like, a really cool movement. And I think I that more too. people should be okay with... I think, like, you know, obviously for most people, drinking, drugs, like, even just stuff like, you know, not sleeping enough, it's just really unhealthy coping mechanisms mm-hmm. that we, like, glorify and make seem like a lifestyle. But really, it's just... It's, like... Just fucking yourself up. Self-harm, basically. Yeah, it really is. I've just... And you do done so much damage to ourselves and the youth of our existence that we're paying for it now, trying to make up for it now. Starting yeah. a health and wellness company to try to let other people avoid that is like a huge motivator. Well, also one thing I wanted to talk to you about because I go. have listened to your podcast, <gasps> which is great. I did my homework. You have three? The, one of the three? <laughs> even Thanks. if even if I was, oh, there's going to be two people to listen to this one. All right. Oh, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to listen to myself because I'm great. I don't, I don't listen to any of them. You don't? Nope. Why? I don't like to listen. You don't to even want to know what the edit looks like at the end. I listen to a little bit, but I don't okay. listen to the whole thing. I get that. Yeah, I can't listen to. Myself. Well, I'll give you a full I'll, report. I let all you guys suffer with that. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Boom. Uh oh. What I was gonna say is listening to your podcast mm-hmm. and also like talking to you a little bit. I see that you're really interested in working with children. You know, we're for the children. You're for the children. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's something like, and I think it's something you should do and you should pursue. But I just like want to really say like how cautious she should be because I feel like for me so like me and my best friend Sam like started our unhealthy habits at a really young age like I think the first time I started dieting I was like six or seven and like my mom used to take me to her Weight Watcher meetings with her and when I was like in like first grade kindergarten and I used to weigh myself every time I would go to the meetings with her and it really created this horrible horrible like like I started counting calories when I was like and I'm sure, like, even as an adult, you know how damaging that can be. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I feel like when it comes to, like, children, 
you really have to like come from like an abundance framework versus like a loss framework in the sense that like I think it's much healthier to be like look at these positive things you can do as opposed to all the things you're doing right now are so negative and you need to cut them out of your life. Absolutely. Like you can't ever have ice cream and have fun or you can't ever like you know, relax, you have to, or, or being about image, which I know that you never would take it to that space, but like, no, and all the kids already do work with just not on like under the death comes lifting this in the St. Clair fitness where I work yeah. and stuff and the programs we've developed there for youth, um, you know, youth, uh, athletes and things like that. Like, and I'm glad you brought this up just so I could talk about it is I never, do anything like that i know i don't involve numbers in anything we don't talk about calories i never want them to weigh themselves i never want them to have a negative association with working out or food like when they say like we have to do this or i can't have that i go no you get to do this exactly you get to have that or if you think like i can't have this whatever twinkie i have to eat this apple. I'm like, no, you have to say like, look, you can have this Twinkie if you want to. And if you think it's going to enhance your life and enhance your experience, then by all means have the fucking Twinkie dog. But you should really tell yourself, you know what? I'm choosing not to have this Twinkie because I'm making a smart decision and I'm enhancing my life. And therefore I'm going to eat the apple or the vegetables yeah. and have a positive association I mean, just as with much everything. As, just as much as but, like unhealthy eating yeah, can become, you gotta be really careful with kids. Yeah, but just as much as like unhealthy eating can become an addiction at an early age, an eating disorder can also become an addiction at an early age. And yeah. having, you know, it can become an addiction at a later age too. Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to say that it can't. I mean, for yeah. you, that that was the case. But like, you know, I remember being in like, I feel like I should like put a broad like trigger warning out there because like I know some of these subjects can be really harmful. But um, I feel like like I remember being like fifth grade and like adults in my life giving me like laxatives and being like if you eat too much or if you ever feel too bloated you should take these yeah that's really fucked being up. like 12 and 11 yeah, that's really like fucked up. going through puberty and being like oh yeah i'm just gonna take like a bunch of laxatives after i eat food every time i eat food or like i remember like we lied about my age when i was i think you have to be 12 to get a gym membership at it was bally's at the time but i live in is now mm-hmm. and we lied about my age by like two years so that i could start going to the gym earlier like that's really fucked up and like i have I so many I have so many experiences like that, and, like, that's, you can't, you can't, like, shame yourself into loving yourself, and I feel like, ultimately, like, if you respect yourself and you love yourself, like, healthy lifestyle comes with that. Absolutely. Sleeping enough comes with that, like, taking care of your mental health comes with that. It's all connected. Yeah, and so I feel like a, and I'm not saying that you wouldn't do this, but I feel like a much more positive route is just to kind of teach kids how to, like... And it sounds so cheesy, but like teach kids how to embrace themselves and like love themselves and be confident. Yeah. That's the basis. Yeah. That's not how most people are functioning in this world. Or... This is true, but that's why we're for the children. That's why we got to start that. <laughs> yeah. We got to start it because that's my whole motivation is so you, so the kids today that we can affect positively don't have to go through what we went through. Yeah. With not even just health and wellness, just, you know, a lot of shit. Like if we had somebody like us that like like right now that like could guide us on the right way through that i feel like it'd be a lot easier yeah and true. a lot more healthy and like i get that like you develop character and things to like hardship and like to going through all those times and, like looking back on them like i'm really grateful for like the lessons i learned and that i made it out alive and shit uh, I but that, like a lot of it's damaging no <laughs> i saw know? a really great tweet that was like i was a child i didn't need like 
character, I needed to be protected. Yeah. And, like, that's the truth. Like That is the truth. Life is hard, and the world is harsh, and, like, you don't need... You can learn without actually, like, experiencing those hardships, you know? Right. It's a balance, for sure. Yeah. But we're trying to just... Yeah. Thank you for your concern, though, and I'm glad you let yeah. me bring that up and let me talk about that, because that's, uh, that's always cool for me, and it's something I'm really passionate about, and I'm really more careful and considerate consider it with that than basically anything else in my life. So, I believe it. I mean, yeah. like, I hope I articulated that well enough because no, it's, you did. it's something that I really care about. And I think sometimes like when things are really close to my heart, it's hard to like express what I'm saying, but I would love to get you um, involved. Yeah. It's bit. definitely a, it's definitely a, it's a very fine line. Absolutely. And, um, I live on fine lines. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't a drug reference. Please, no drug references. <laughs> this is for the children. This so. is for the children. And, uh, yeah. And maybe we'll make it, we'll make it a straight-edge conversation. Straight-edge conversation. Straight edge conversation. Um, yeah. So is is uh, is this a good segue into the for the children work that you do? Sure. Um, let's, uh, yeah, definitely, let's talk about that. If you think I could ramble about other stuff, this is where I really start to ramble. So you got to be the... Check this out. This is the, this is This is the meat of the podcast. This is This is good stuff. All right. Lauren's a great person. You gotta listen to her for a minute, though. You gotta get. Rid of, I'm gonna sit back. Don't some don't coffee. don't center me too much. But yeah. So um, I guess uh, my whole life. I, I'll start with a little fun anecdote. So like, growing up, my mom was like was always making us volunteer for literally every single thing. So like, we would have to go to like every school event, like whether it was like school bingo or a barbecue or whatever. But not only would we have to attend those events, we would have to come early. To help set up and we'd have to stay late to like break down the tables and it drove us crazy and it like pissed me off and it pissed my dad off and every <laughs> single time shout out to Susie, real quick <laughs> my mom's name is susan what um, up <laughs> so uh yeah so she was really intense about it and it drove us crazy because we didn't really feel like we were like why are we doing this like i remember having arguments with her being like eight and being like mom why are we breaking down the tables these janitors are here to break down the tables and she'd always kind of respond with like a similar thought process which was you know, the janitors have families too. The janitors also want to get home. And if there's a bunch of us, if we all work together, if we all break down the tables, we'll all be home earlier than like, you know, than if we just let one or two people do it. And it did drive me crazy, but I guess somewhere along the line, like that really became how I framed my world. And then also like in middle school, she used to take us out of school and take us to volunteer, which was really cool because it was like this exciting thing where it was like, oh, we get to skip school for a day and we get to spend time with our mom. But we're also going to help the community in some way. So, like, uh, we would pack bo- boxes at food banks, um, work at community gardens, things like that. And it was something that, like, I think at a, a really young age, like, instilled the power of, like, community work and, um, and collaboration in me. So I've always been volunteering to some extent. I also, you know, was a Girl Scout for 14 years, and that's, like, heavily involved in Girl Scouts. I was involved in student council, which involved a lot of volunteering, and even though I'm a non-religious person, was involved in a youth group for many years, that was heavily involved with volunteering. So, um, been doing that most of my life. But then somewhere around the time I was like maybe 16, uh, I became a little bit more actively invested. Um, at the time I was really interested, and I mean, this is something I'm still interested in, but at the time I was very interested in the war in Central and East Africa. And that was, um, with the LRA or the Lord's Resistance Army and, um, basically, like, not only, like, child soldiers and, um, and child sex slaves and things along those lines, but also, like, the effects that it had on the community long-term over decades of war. And, um, it was something that I found, you know, 
I found to be something that I couldn't ignore and I had to get more involved with. So I started by um, working with different organizations that worked in that region, um, from organizations like Invisible Children to uh, uh, International Justice Mission and like also some local organizations. And I started by fundraising. And if you're from the PA area, you might know Sarah's Candy Bars, uh, which are a local chocolate company, and like they're sold a lot of the time for fundraisers for Girl Scouts or sporting events or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I called up Sarah's and I was like, "How do I, how do I start selling chocolate bars?" And they're like, "Oh, you know, you just buy so many." And initially, I got twenty five cents on the bar, but I think today I get like almost the whole dollar on the bar. Pop, pop, pop. So here's my little dollar, dollar bills, y'all. Here's my little fun fact. Let's go. Um, just to keep viewers uh, listening, viewers, viewers not listening. It. <laughs> The listeners watching. I Let's also go. feel like I need to give like a a little um, moment of clarity that I am very deliriously tired, which I was just I was just. You sound ranting. exhausted. I was just well. This is I get real loopy when I'm tired. I was just ranting about the importance of sleep. Um, I caught like no sleep last night, so I, my brain is, is not. You'll become like this if you sleep don't sleep. Is, yeah. <laughs> um, so my brain's not working fully. Um, Sarah's chocolate. But yeah, so dollar on the bar. My question for you is golden ticket. I'm 25. I started selling Sarah's when I was 17. Let's go. How many candy bars do you think I've sold today? 10,000. No. <laughs> oh, no, I am, I am high. I am high, man. No, keep going. Uh, higher? It's, it's higher, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. You looked at me like crazy. That's like crazy, you're so low. 25,000. No. At what point should I tell you? Should I give you a few more guesses? I don't hey, know if this game is actually fun Give me up anybody. or down. Up. Oh. 60,000. You're closer. All right. Tell me. About 73,000 candy bars. Dope. Yeah. Which is about, if it was a dollar in the bar, it would be about $73,000. Today, I have fundraised. So, like, I started with the Sarah's, the Sarah's candy bars, but I also did things like I did a dodgeball tournament. I did um, a couple different dances, which I will elaborate a little bit more on because Zach helped me with them. Um, or one of them. Against my will. Probably. Against his will. Um, I did movie events, different things like that. But today, I fundraised probably. I'll go, like, a little bit higher, probably, like, $150,000 for different um, charitable causes. Mm-hmm. So I started my work in grassroots fundraising. That was uh, how I started getting involved in activism, because it felt like it was very interesting to me that, like, with very little effort, you know, I could raise, like, $10 or something, but then I could see where that $10 went, and I could see, like, the real impact that it made on the world. And so that was, like, really exciting for me. Um, Can I reel it back for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... Your mom basically got your head space in with, like, the volunteering and, like, the give back to the community and we're all in this together kind of yeah. aspect from an early age, whereas that's important. That's cool, I think, because a lot of moms don't do that, and then you end up like me. But anyway, <laughs> what was it about the, uh, like, the uh, wars in Africa? Like, what does that, that, like, really, like, lit the fire under your ass, right, to, like, start this stuff? And, like, why, what happened? Why did that grab your attention? Why did you start to take a stance on that instead of, like, hey, let's save the turtles or something? Yeah, shit, absolutely. You know? I mean, I think that, like, I do think a lot of people will make the argument, like, why this cause? Why not that cause? And I also, I just kind of feel like whatever strikes you, strikes yeah, you. I mean, I'm just wondering. I don't think it's wrong at all. Yeah, just absolutely. Um, I think, and I, so I would just like to preface with, I think that my mindset back then in some ways was a little bit problematic and I feel like I've grown a lot obviously since I was like 16. Would hope so. But I think that a lot of it came from just like a big driver for me why I was involved with activism why I was involved with volunteering was that I 
deeply hated myself. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? And uh, I really just had the most miserable existence. Like, I was, from a very young age, depressed and suicidal and suffering from eating disorders. And I kind of just felt like I I wanted to help somebody so that they didn't have to feel as terrible as I did. And I, like, learned about different conflicts, and it felt like this is obviously, like, very horrible. This is the longest running war in that region of Africa. It's been going, at this point, it's been going on for, like, three decades. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of children had been abducted from their homes, forced to kill, or, you know, basically live as as sex slaves. And at the time, and I do think in some ways this is a little bit problematic of a mindset, but at the time it was just kind of like, my problems are not, are not big in, in comparison. And then the other side of that coin was, these are people, or these are people who I perceive to be, nobody's, nobody's caring about them. Right. And so, like, in so my mind, it was hard. like, yeah, it was like, well, I feel very sad and alone in this world, and if I can help somebody else feel like somebody cares about them, like, that was really important to me. And that was, like, a big driver for me. Um, so, yeah, so I started with, like, fundraising, and I did some lobbying uh, on Capitol Hill. <laughs> Fuck them up. Punk um, <laughs> I did, uh, yeah, just different stuff like that. Um, spe- some speaking engagements, and um, then I had, like, um, a couple different a couple different situations where I had former child soldiers stay stay with me for speaking engagements or for events that they were doing in the Pittsburgh area. And that was cool because I got to take, like, you know, at the time, I mean, we were 16, 17, living in an incredibly, like, undiverse area. I think, so Pittsburgh is the least diverse city of its size, and then Bethel Park, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh, is one of the most white communities in the country. It's, like, top... 15 or something. It's really, 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 really white. And so, like, I had a lot of, just like anybody else at 16 growing up in a white suburb, a lot of um, ideas of what Africa was. And, you know, obviously not recognizing that it's, you know, a bunch of different diverse countries with different languages and tribes and communities and um, that it's not just this one monolith. And also, like, recognizing kind of learning more what poverty was. I was coming from, like, a really privileged perspective. And, um... Losing my train of thought. Can can we edit this out? Yeah. (laughs) We can. Cool. Okay, so I'm trying to think where I was going with that. It's fine. We can take a break. Yeah. Well, it's weird. I mean, as much as I love um, attention and I love talking about myself, it's weird when I'm just like, all right, go. And then I just feel like you're, like, so intently listening that I'm like, oh, all the pressure is on what I say. But... Nah, um, dude, nothing at all. I know that that's not the case, but, you know, hashtag anxiety. I'll... See that? Um, shit, what was I saying? Were you listening to me? Yes, I absolutely <laughs> was listening to you. Well, you were talking about why oh, okay. so I was saying, made such so meeting, like, on you. So meeting real-life people from Uganda um, and recognizing that they're not just some statistic or just some person in a documentary or some sad, pathetic, you know, poor whatever however the you know the u.s and the west yeah yeah so it was a really cool experience and it was cool to get to meet people and like hear their stories of of existing in war because as somebody living in white suburbs of the u.s never could really understand that and i never will be able to really understand that because it's not a lived experience for me yeah um so that like that made things a little more real for me um and then at the time i became really good friends with a few ugandans who introduced me to some of their friends and that's basically, like, when I started the best partnership of my life, which is with my best friend and colleague, Henry, 
Shawanika Henry or Henry Kin. Um, and he is pretty much the most amazing person I've ever met in my whole life. Like so I Henry. cannot say better things about him. He's hilarious. He's talented. He is um, passionate. And um, basically I was introduced to him and he was doing um, some community work in the area that he grew up in, which is in the central part of Uganda. It's called Shiboga. We need to get Henry on the cast, man. Let's we 100% go. need to get Henry what is on he, the He's cast. still in Uganda right now? He's still in Uganda. I'm trying to get him to visit the U.S. at some point. Obviously, there's like a ton of red tape with travel in the U.S. And Yeah. Um, but When are you going back to Uganda? Thinking about January. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll come back to that later. Anyway, continue, yeah. Henry. Yeah. I'm, I hope I'm not forgetting anything important. No, you're not. Trust All right. Me. <laughs> there's not, there's, I mean, there's so much that you yeah. don't even know, so maybe I am. Maybe. Um, so yeah, so I met him and he was doing some really great community work in his area. Um, he had very briefly, this is a fun fact about Henry, been a local celebrity, uh, in like his early teen years, he was basically like a, like pop star, like a boy band type pop star. Yeah. There's some really great I need to, I need to talk to this guy. Oh, he's the best. He's hilarious. He's the funniest person that I know. Might Um, take DCL to Africa, dog. Might have to. Let's go. Well, hold up. Let me just, for the... For the listeners, clarify that the first time I ever went to Uganda, I invited you. Yeah, that was like fucking how many years ago? Like six years ago. Yeah. I invited you and you were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was definitely in the position. You definitely were never going. I was was definitely (laughs) in the position to go. Right now, I would go. Totally believed you were going to, though, by the way. Little flake. But we won't harp on that point Mm -hmm. for the... We'll only say good things about you for this podcast. Yeah, so... uh, Hey, really good friends with him. He was doing a lot of work in his community because he had a little bit of money being somebody who had a little bit of stardom for a little bit. And he also, you know, he had grew up, grown up in a family that um, had some political influence. His father is the district counselor and Henry also works for local government. So he was using like whatever little, you know, privilege or resources that he had um, to better his community. So he had like some small projects. And both of us were really passionate about the work that we were doing individually. And we were like, let's pair up, let's do a project together. And, like, my whole life, I would say, like, the thing that I'm most passionate about is helping women and girls. It's something that I've always felt really passionate about. Um, And we could get into that at another time, why I feel that way. But I wanted to do something that specifically impacted women and girls. And um, we started with education. So I'll throw some some statistics at you. But, um, yeah, obviously, so a big problem anywhere... Um, in the world, but also in the area that we were working in, was that um, education for girls, there's a huge gap between education for girls and boys. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, Some of the reasons include that, you know, a lot of people there don't have... So, there's a lot to explain. Take your breath. We've got time. No big deal. (laughs) So, uh, school fees in, in Uganda, education is not free. I would say the average school fees are anywhere between $200 and $600 a year. And many of the people working in this area are making about a dollar a day. So Do the math. Do the math. So to send one of their children to school for a whole year, let alone for many years, on top of the fact that many of the people we work with have four, five, six children, you kind of have to pick and choose where you use that money. So a lot of them, and to no fault of their own, like, will do the best that they can and, for whatever reason, end up sending their sons to school. And I think a lot of that comes from they would like their daughters to stay home and help them work. Mm. And, like, just like as women are socialized here, you know, helping with the home is something that is 
a lot of women are grown like grown up to do. So that's like that's a factor. So like you know taboos and the way that society is social constructs. But then there's there's other reasons too. Like um, a lot of girls can't afford school fees. So um, older men can be kind of predatory and say like, okay, I'll pay for your school fees if you marry me. Mm. And then they'll drop out of school at like 12, 13 because of child marriage, or they'll get pregnant at an early age and drop out of school. Um, or, you know, cycle. yeah, it's a laundry list of things um, of why there is that gap between girls and boys. Um, but there, that is very noticeable. And like I said, it is globally noticeable. Absolutely. Um, so we were like, okay, how about for a project? We, supply some scholarships for some girls. That's an easy project that we can do. I can raise the money. Henry can find the girls. We make this happen. And uh, so I started fundraising in all the ways that I've been doing in high school. I, at the time, was a waitress, and I gave all of my tips to the the project. Um, I had a few benefit shows, which were pretty punk rock, I guess. Super um, punk rock. To loop that back. Um, Also, just, like, some really scrappy stuff. Like, uh, I remember, like, when I was a freshman in uh, college or university, depending on what country, if you're listening to this. Oh, I like that. Well, everywhere else in the world is called Uh, university. University. We'll go with it. We'll be cultured. And if I tell, like, if I tell any of my Ugandan friends that I go to college, they're confused because college elsewhere is, like, trade school. We're so fucked up. Which, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a different thing. Yeah. So, people are like, why did you go to trade school, like? That doesn't make sense for... Higher education. Yeah. So, yeah. So, when I was a freshman in university, um, I got, like, a bunch of, like, dum-dums, like, the lollipops for Valentine's Day, and I literally, on, like, a Friday night or a Thursday night when everybody was, like, drunk, walked around the dorm, knocked on, like, 50 to 100 doors, and just was like, hey, I'll give you, like, a handful of dum-dums, or, like, I had other candy... Um, if you have any spare change or if you have any dollars or just anything laying around that you'd like to donate, uh, it's going towards scholarships in central Uganda. And so people, like some people would give like two pennies that they pull out of their pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there'd be some drunk people or some giving people who'd be like, here's a 10. And I think we made like $200 from that. I mean, we, it took that's us hours. That's so gangster though. But like, that's how we fundraised in the beginning of, um, the organization, which I will get to this because no, this is important. But yeah. this is the early days. So you gotta go through the punk rock selling uh, dum dums on people's dorm rooms, I guess. Yeah. AKA, yeah, it's better than selling drugs and doing whatever else you got to do, right? And I also like to say, like, you know, telling this story, I can he- like, and I'll get more to this at the end of the story. There's a lot of things about it that make me cringe, or there's a lot of things about it, like my actions or the way I frame things or the way that I thought that. I would not do today. Obviously, like, that's what growing is. And I have the privilege of, of seeing that I've grown and say, like, if you're cringing at yourself from a few years ago, then that means you've grown. You're and that's doing pretty something cool. right. It means you're doing something right. right. However, you know, obviously I would do things differently now. Um, anyway, so, like, as I get into that, um, basically we, we started with these scholarships. And I wanted to name the project. And we had... So the project's name, or the now nonprofit's name, is Pauline Juliet. Look and it up. I'll, I'll say it a little bit it. slower. Gonna link it in the, we're going to link it in the description Perfect. and everything. Yeah, we're going to send everybody towards Pauline and Juliet. Perfect. It's, so yeah. it's named after our first two beneficia- beneficiaries, Pauline and Juliet. And basically, like, they had inspired the whole project because... Um, so Henry had met them. They lived in a rural area in the district that we work in. And both their parents had unfortunately died of AIDS. And... Um, which obviously is, like, a big issue globally. And um, they had dropped out of school because they could not afford school fees and hadn't been going to school for, like, three years. 
and they were living with relatives who were really great but had their own kids and were struggling to kind of, you know, give them everything that that they deserved. So, um, at the time I remember we were hearing this story and like, it literally, I can like picture myself, I was in my freshman dorm room and I was talking to Henry about this and I was just like, we're going to give them scholarships. Like, that's what we're going to do. They got to go to school. Because if you know anything about international development or even just common sense, the best way to pull yourself out of poverty or to have more confidence or to have opportunity in life or all these things, X, Y, and Z, is to have an education. Like, that's, like, the foundation of everything. True. And so, like, you know, these girls were 10 and 12. And, like, they deserved to be in school. That was fundamental. Whether whether it be, you know, for social purposes and, like, just development and growth or whether it be, you know, to have that foundation for the future so that they can get jobs, so that they can have better opportunities, so that they don't fall into statistics of, you know, teen marriage or child marriage or teen pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, So because they had sparked the interest in the project, I thought it was best to name the organization after them. So that's how we, or named the, at the time it was just a project. So we named the project Paul and Juliet and we started with, um, scholarships. And the first, somehow the first project that we did was give out 50 scholarships and they were all towards children who were orphans in the, like, in the actual definition or like the technical definition of orphan. Cause in like a Western perspective, we consider orphans people who don't have either parent but like i guess like in the more technical perspective of orphan it's somebody who like financially is okay not completely set up like some of them had one parent or lived with relatives um but didn't have what they needed to go to school so we gave um to 50 kids um not all of them were full scholarships some of them were partial scholarships but that was the first project we did and it's pretty badass nonetheless Thank you. Yeah, um, this, super yeah, I mean, I was 19 and Henry was, Henry's two and a half years older than me, so he was 21 and I was 19. It's another very important point to make. You've been doing this shit for a long time. Yeah. You've been at this scholarship well, fundraising I don't know game. if it was on your podcast that I was listening to it. I don't want to, like, literally quote your podcast, but Please I was listening to something. my podcast on my podcast. I was listening to something recently so that really hit me, which it was like, everything's just about consistency. Like, yeah. if you just are... Con- I don't know if it was your podcast, but if you're just consistent... You talk about consistency a lot. Like, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, like, you know, want to be like, whoa, like, everything you've done is incredible. And, like, I just am passionate, and I've just been consistent with my goals. Like, I probably... That's what's if, up, man? If I was being, like, my most productive self, I probably could have done a lot more. Um, but I was consistent, you, and you that's... You can apply that to anything, though. That's I can apply that to anything. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's... And I mean to when yeah. I say that. Absolutely. Um, That's important for people to take home, man. Consistency. Consistency, absolutely. You don't even have to show up at your best every day. Just keep hammering away at it and doing it when a bunch of people are laughing at you in any way and whatever you want. You know, you did all this shit in high school and it was, like, not cool. And now I think it's so cool. Oh, we'll get back to that. (laughs) And and it is, uh, it's really, like, beautiful, man. It, like, touch. it really does touch my heart. And you're strong strong and fucking badass for all this shit. So, yeah, to be doing this stuff when we were... 15, 16, up until right now, as strong as ever, that's, you know, it keeps me going. Like, I think of people like that. People like you, it's really important. So that means a lot keep, me. keep, keep trucking away, everybody. Um, and that's something we can talk about when we're not talking about Paul and Julia, but y'all sure. did not think it was cool when I started. No, what um. <laughs> asshole 16-year-olds do. Uh, but yeah, so one thing I would like to stress, um, you know, I did mention that, you know, we weren't coming. We probably were not... <laughs> 
the projects that we were doing were great, yes, like, objectively. But that being said, were we the best people to be doing them? Probably not. A 19-year-old and a 21-year-old? Probably not. Especially with one of those 19-year-olds being somebody who's never lived that experience or been in that country. Um, that being said, we have always come from the perspective of we don't know everything, we don't know what's best for other people, and we want to learn. So, like, starting from the get-go, both me and Henry at the time were getting undergrads in, in this field so that we could learn more about it. Um, I got an undergrad in public service with a certificate in nonprofit management and a certificate in women, gender, and sexuality studies. And then we both went on to get master's degrees in the same, uh, same fields. I just finished my master's degree, uh, from Penn in nonprofit leadership and Henry's finishing his master's degree this month. And then he has like a dozen certificates as well. So both of us have come from the standpoint of like, we're not the best people to be doing this. We don't know what we're doing and we don't want to ever assume that we do. We want to be learning. We want to be, if this month, I think the same thing five years from now, then like, I probably didn't learn anything. I'm probably being stubborn and I'm probably inserting myself in a place that I probably shouldn't be at. Um, so like the first, the first pillar of that was getting an education and learning like academically how to be better in that field. And then the second pillar, and this is like always been one of our core values, is I will never, ever, as a person who's had a totally different lived experience than the people we work with, I will never, ever claim to know that I know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. And so our, from the get-go, all of our projects have always been Ugandan-led, and all of our projects, for the most part, have been female-led. And basically as somebody who had that privilege of, okay, I have a little money to spare or I have a little bit of time or whatever, and I want to help this cause, I felt the best way to do that was to step back, to listen, and to use my resources and my standing to help facilitate those projects. So, you know, I didn't come in saying, even though I had learned from my experience working with war relief efforts and my experience working with Ugandans in high school, I had learned, obviously, education is, you know, the most foundational aspect to, you know, eradicate poverty. Um, that's, like, such a, a minimal... What's the word I'm looking for? Like, um... What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> I get what you're trying to say. That statement is, like, really minimizing a big... A big um, but it's also... A big word. Keep it so simple. You know, it's the truth. But you know? as Take much as I education. knew that personally... I was never going to come in and say, this is the project that's going to save everything. It was more just like, like so many, and I've lived, this is an experience that I've lived. So many white Westerners who work in African countries or in other non-Western countries have this ego and have this, well, I know what's best for you. And, you know, and even if they're coming from a place, even if they're coming from a good place, can ultimately be more harmful than helpful. Absolutely. And that, that white savior, like, ego trip about absolutely. us. Absolutely. And know? it's more than just being pretentious or, you know, being harmful in that you're, like, offending people. Like, you can do, you can really fuck shit up with that. And there are a absolutely. lot of people that are. Um, and I, I don't want to say I'm, like, you know, I'm immune to that. Like, I definitely, there's definitely been things that I've done that, are not great. And I'm sure to this day, there are things that I could be doing better. And the only thing that I can commit to is to grow and to listen. And I think that that also applies to a lot of things in life is, you know, never to make assumptions about people who you've never experienced their life to listen and to always be committed to 
that buzzword, a growth mindset, you know, or buzzwords. That's fucking awesome, though. Yeah. So, to backtrack, um, so yeah, we started with the scholarship project, and we did that, you know, after the 50 scholarships, we were kind of like, well, what now? And so we did, you know, we went back to our core values, and we said, well, let's ask the community, like, what, what are they, you know, what's the, what's the problem with girls going to school? So we talked to different girls who were out of school, girls who were in school, uh, families, and basically we learned, you know, both me and Henry learned that there was a lot that we didn't know about the situation. And again, maybe where we came in with assumptions or we came in with, you know, with ego. And so we learned that there are a lot of barriers to education in Uganda. And one of the big barriers and, uh, if, if you're like squeamish or like misogynist light, you might not like this topic. But one of the big barriers is not having adequate menstrual resources. And um, so like a lot of girls do not have sanitary pads. A lot of girls don't have clean underwear. And that's a big barrier to school. And that's actually something that we've learned about a lot recently because we started doing these menstrual health surveys and um, sex education surveys where basically we've gone into the schools that we work with and asked girls just about their lived experiences as menstruating students and hearing some of the things that came back were really horrifying like just hearing that like you know girls would go to school and then they would bleed through their uniform and then the boys would make fun of them and then they wouldn't want to go back to school again or at the very least they wouldn't go back to school when they were menstruating and then they would get so you know far behind that they would drop out of school um and actually the statistic is that in uganda girls miss up to 25 percent of their school year because of their their periods and not having adequate resources so that's a huge amount i mean that's a fourth of the school year and that's saying and that's if girls just like school. one little problem that's and that's one just barrier. one problem just absolutely one barrier, yeah. and and then that like i was saying way before it's a chain reaction where it's like okay i don't have products to go to school so i'm not going to go to school and then somebody offers to pay for my sanitary pads or my school fees and then i end up married or whatever at a young age or in a situation that i shouldn't have to be in um so we, so the next project we did was supply sanitary pads. And at the time, we just worked with um, different rotary clubs and just literally just buying sanitary pads, buying underwear, buying soap, and giving little lessons about, you know, how to use these products adequately. Because not only, I mean, that's like a huge problem. Like, you're, you're missing school. You're feeling ashamed, embarrassed. Like, you don't have dignity in a place that you should feel included and safe and good, which is school. And on top of that, it's a health problem. And, like, you know, a lot of girls could have some serious health problems from not having adequate resources. So we started doing that. And I also, I if it's possible, I want to pause for a second because I want to look up some some uh, Pauline Juliet factoids. Let's go. Let's pause it. So, should I start talking? Yeah. Okay, so um, with this project, it like just like the scholarship project, it started out um, really small. And that was just giving out sanitary pads to girls that needed them. Today, in 2019, we have given out, we, so we give out year supplies. So it's like a year's worth of sanitary pads, a year's worth of underwear, a year's worth of soap, and hygiene booklets. And we've given out 1,858 menstrual kits. So that would oh. give 1,858 girls another year of being in school or feeling comfortable in, in that sense. That's awesome. I couldn't even um, imagine, honestly. Yeah, and that's also something, I mean, that's another topic. There's so many things we could talk about, but... Lots of branches, but that's super... Well, I was just going to say, like, you know, like, I've also just experienced a lot of uh, menstrual health problems with endometriosis and things like that, 
and knowing like how much that's affected my life and if I had that extra barrier of not having the resources I needed like I can't even imagine that it would be terrible and it's right. it's not okay so yeah so we started with scholarships we moved on to sanitary pads we learned that a lot of kids didn't have basic scholastic materials so like we started a scholastic material project which we gave out you know pencils and notebooks and calculators and basically would come up with packages that um, would just supply a kid with everything they needed for the year and let me find so today we have given out 1269 scholastic material packages which would give an entire year's worth of scholastic materials to students so it's like notebooks and pencils and like shit like that yeah like rulers. stuff you need for school yeah okay and so yeah so scholarships i also would like to look up to see how many scholarships we've got so on. it's like there's a lot of different angles of this thing it's just like a case of like something you got involved in and then like it just kind, kept kind of like the more you know about something you find out the less you know about exactly. something like one of those classic cases um, and you find yourself like where do i go now just for if there's ever if you ever need these numbers um, yeah we need them we've given out 526 scholarships We're credible to orphans and low-income families in rural uganda and of those scholarships 212 have been full scholarships which it would be for an entire year of school and 314 have been partial scholarships which would usually be for half a year of school read it and weep um so yeah so helping. started with the scholarships then the sanitary pads then the scholastic materials and then we kind of came from this um we learned that like you can't just throw, and this is, this is like a critique of like the entire development field, um, international development field, and also like even national development. You can't just throw things at people. You can't just throw scholarships, glass materials, sanitary pads, and like, I mean, those things do help, but you can't just like expect poverty not to exist anymore, you know, sexism not to exist. Like these big systems and of oppression are not just going to poof with just some money being thrown well, That's just it. a criticism of charities in general, right? Yeah, and, like, both me and Henry, as people who were actively in school learning about these things, were like, we have to work towards, every nonprofit should be working towards sustainability. Every nonprofit should be working at the root of causes, and the root of causes is these big systems of oppression. And while, like, we do believe that, you know, these smaller, I don't want to say they're band-aids, because that's also, like, belittling what we do, but these smaller things are important, but we also have to be constantly mindful and working towards those bigger systems of oppression, whether that be... But how do you beat those? Isn't that the age-old dilemma? Yeah. Is you kind of can't? Well, I mean, I think you... I I mean, I hate to say you can't. I shouldn't have even said you can't, because, you know, fight the power and all that shit. You can win, but motherfucker, it has to be hard. It is hard. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would like to think that we've... I would like to think that we've you've worked helped, pretty hard you've with improved that. many individuals' lives or whatever. But, but how at the do you, same how time, how do you make the system better? Well, let, I'll get to that. Okay. I don't. I mean, I'm just one person. This is just my opinion. Fantastic. Listen to many. Honestly, just turn off this podcast and just read all of Angela Davis's books. Yeah, that's <laughs> totally reasonable. Yeah, we'll see you back here in a couple of days. Just, I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're they're good reads. Uh, I'm sure. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so we basically can't. I, I realized, like, this is not dumb or not fruitless, but, like, it's not creating as much impact as I would like. And my two biggest fears at the time, which are still my two biggest fears, are, one, getting back to that white savior complex or that, you know, coming from a perspective of somebody who's never lived these experiences, my first biggest fear was I'm going to create more harm than good or any harm. And so that was, like, my always been my driving force of, like, growing and learning and still to this day is an anxiety that keeps me up at night. 
And then the second fear I had was, okay, maybe I won't cause any harm, but maybe I won't be doing the best that I can be doing, or I won't be utilizing the resources to the best they can be utilized. And then I'm wasting that opportunity or those resources. So basically we were thinking and we were like, we can't just throw things at people. We need to help students and we need to help these girls like holistically. So we started with eight beneficiaries and we gave them basically five years of, and we still work with a few of them today, five years where we were like, okay, we're going to give you everything that you need to be successful in school. We're going to give you scholarships for paying for your school fees. We're going to pay for your boarding expenses so that you can live at school and you can breathe school. We're going to pay for your scholastic materials, your sanitary pads, your haircuts, your doctor's visits, your field trip costs, your test costs, because test costs things, uh, any food that you might need, uh, boarding materials like lanterns and bed sheets and mattresses and all of that, and mentoring. And we're going to check in with you and we're going to make sure that you are having the best educational experience that you can have. Because we felt like that was ultimately more impactful to help those eight students than it would be to just give dozens of scholarships or dozens of sanitary pads or whatever. Say, yeah. And we still did give out, obviously hearing those numbers before, we still did give out sanitary pads or, you know, scholastic materials, but these eight girls were really our focus in the beginning. And that's how Pauline Julia started. So for about a year, we were working with these eight beneficiaries and it was just a project, Pauline Julia. And I was really grinding to get money. So basically other than waitressing and doing, you know, that, uh, scrappy stuff, like, selling candy bars and selling uh other types of candy not healthy stuff but um (laughs) selling apples uh i was speaking to rotary clubs and i was speaking to you know foundations and different things along those lines and i kept hitting the same barrier which was that none of these people were going to give us money if we weren't a registered 501c3 nonprofit. and at the time it was like okay at this point i'm 20 years old did I ever think that I would be running a nonprofit? Did I ever think that that would even be something I wanted in my life at all, let alone when I'm 20 years old? As like, you know, the same, the same thought might happen at 25 years old. Do I want to be a business owner? Do I, you know, do I want this responsibility? But it was also like, this is our big barrier for raising money. And like, we're doing some cool stuff. We have so much vision for what we want for the future. So... We filed for the 501c3, which if anybody who's listening has ever tried to file for a 501c3, it's so much paperwork. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of organizations, months or years. We, my mom's a paralegal, she helped a lot and we got it done in a few months. And within a year of starting the, the concept, we had become a 501c3 nonprofit, which what that means is that we are a legal, the, you know, the government, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania use us as a nonprofit. It means that donations are tax deductible. It means that we don't pay taxes. Uh, every year we have to, you know, file a 990. Um, but other than that, like, we'd be a, an official nonprofit. The government would give us a stamp as an organization. Sure. So that was obviously, like, a really big turning point. And we, we got more support. Because people will trust you. You legitimize you know, We legitimize the organization. And at that point, so we are actually a separate entity from the organization in Uganda. And the organization in Uganda just is just working on... For a while, we were registered as a community-based organization in Uganda, which is something that we don't have here, but they have there. And then we just worked on getting our um, our nonprofit license there. But, um, yeah, so we were an official organization... I think that was, like, 2014, when I was a sophomore in college. Damn. 
And at this point, like, I had been traveling to Uganda and, you know, seeing the projects in real life, meeting people. And also, you know, like I said, from the get-go, I always wanted these projects to be Ugandan-led. I always... I just wanted to help in any way I could. So it was really just about meeting people, working with people, partnering. And to mention some of our other core values, one of our other core values that's super important to us is partnership. And I genuinely believe one of the most punk things, one of the most important things in any movement is partnership. I think too many people, I think ego gets in the way and narcissism gets in the way where too many people want their own thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot more change... And not even just, like, with social movements or nonprofits, but, like, with anything, with music, anything. A lot more can be done if people work together. Strength as and unity, man. Yeah. Wu-Tang Clan. And uh, so partnerships are really big and important thing to us. Uh, to this day, you know, we partner with dozens of local Ugandan organizations, dozens of Ugandan local businesses. Uh, we partner with some local Pittsburgh businesses. Maybe Death Comes Lifting. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we also partner with almost 30 uh, local schools in the Uganda, in the Chiboga region, so, or district. So we work with, we partner with universities, we partner with elementary schools or primary schools, secondary schools, trade schools. And that's been a big game changer for us too, which I'll talk more about later. Um, I lost my train of thought. Just giving out all your credentials. Just throwing it all out there. Just I'm just vomiting all it all out there. Hopefully so some of it where, where is it at now? What's, what's going on with Paul and Julia right now? I mean, so much. So the big change was after we became um, an organization, we were like, okay, what all do we want to do? Okay. It's great working with girls. Obviously, education is really great. We're helping them in all these other ways, and we have these eight beneficiaries. But this is, we want a movement. We want something that is going to systemically change the, the district. It's going to change, you know, social constructs and taboos and, and mindsets, and it's really going to be a movement. And I, I want, I mean, Pauline Juliet is much more than a nonprofit, or it's much more than me and Henry. Pauline Juliet is a community. Pauline Juliet is an ethos. And that ethos is a global community working towards the education, empowerment of women and girls. And Punk rock that's hell. way bigger than it, than we'll ever be. So I feel the same way. Yeah. So, uh, so we decided that we really wanted a women's association. And so we created the women's association. And at the time it was just, it was just wild trying to create something like that. Um, because, you know, a lot of people were like, why would I want to get involved with this? Like, yeah. what are you, you're just two, like, children. Like, why would we want to be involved in this? And what's been really exciting about it is as it's grown, a lot of people who initially were critics or initially were skeptical have come back and been like, wow, I've seen what you've done with this. And like, I definitely want to be a part of it. But we have the Women's Association and it's made up of 600 active members. Oh, shit. Yep. And a thousand registered children. And it's... For yeah, the kids, baby. For the kids. Yeah. Um, well, ultimately, you know, again, as a learning process, we, yeah. we learned and recognized that if you're helping women, you're helping the entire community. You're helping their families. You're helping their children. You're helping generations moving forward. And also, like, if you're helping a woman's child, regardless of their gender, you're helping that woman, too. Because in this area, with the 600 women that we work with, the vast majority of them are single mothers, whether it be, you know, that they're widows or by choice or whatever circumstance. Um, and so these single mothers, many of them are working two, three jobs and raising multiple children. Yeah. And so we figured if we could find a space that could help these women, then we could help the entire district. We could help neighboring districts. We could change a small part of the world. So it's the dream. 
we started with this organi- with this uh, women's association. The women's association, the long name for it is Pauline Juliet's Women's Empowerment Association, which is PJWEA, and we call it PJWay. Um, Fuck yeah. We have monthly meetings, and then we also have a yearly meeting that's huge with like a couple hundred to a thousand people, music, lots of different activity. So the Women's Association has dozens of its own projects. We have a farming project, a skill training project, a savings program, which has been amazing. We have 400 um, monthly savers, which is almost, I mean, almost all the women in the association. But what's really incredible about that is many of these women have never saved, have never had the privilege of being able to save in their lives. Because if you're making a dollar a day, like, and you have all of these expenses, it's really difficult to save. And so a lot of the women have been very excited about the savings program because for the first time in their life they're saving, they're having money that they can put towards a small business or toward their dreams as opposed to just, you know, literally just treading water. Yeah, that's literally changing things. You're literally instilling, like, knowledge in them on how to change the future. Yeah, and it's been really exciting. And, like, you know, we've... Um, and, like, like to, to stress this... Uh, can't stress this enough. Community-led... All the all of the teachers that we get, all of the leaders that we get, are always you know, Ugandan, Ugandan, or at least East African, um, because we, I mean, community, regardless of what community you live in, whether that's the queer community or the black community, or you live in, uh, you know, a community in Bethel Park, the, the DIY suburb community, community, the DIY community, whatever. I believe that community efforts should be led internally. And I think as somebody outside of that community, you can absolutely help and support those efforts and help facilitate those efforts, but you have to take a backseat role. And if... It's very smart. I genuinely believe that Pauline Juliet is bigger than I'll ever be. I Like, Pauline Juliet comes first than me. And I want to do what's best for Pauline Juliet, not what's best for me. Word. Um, so yeah, so, so we did savings program, lots of stuff like that. We do also have eight acres of land, which we initially were thinking about building a school on. That's kind of been shifted as we put our efforts instead to partnering with local schools. Like I said, we partner with about 30 local schools. We felt that it would honestly have a bigger impact if we helped develop schools that already existed as opposed to creating one. So we do lots of things with our partner schools. We've given them scholastic materials like chalk, paper, soccer balls, things like that. We've given building materials like concrete. We've given solar panels to local schools. And in turn, the local schools have helped us tremendously, whether it be identifying students that need help whether it be, um, we have a, so we have a teacher's association as well. And that teacher's association is made up of representatives from every one of our partner schools. We have headmasters and teachers and those teachers come together. And it's really great because in the meetings, they can talk about, you know, how they teach students or like what they've learned. And those teachers can grow from that, but then they also can come together and plan events, whether that be like, um, whether that be a sporting events or we just had a, we just sponsored a chess competition. It was Chiboga's first ever chess competition that happened two days ago or debates between the schools. So yeah, so school partnerships has been really great. Um, but yeah, we have eight acres of land and we use that land for farming. We also have a safe house on that land, um, where people can stay, whether it be because they're victims of abuse or, um, we did have a family of seven there living, living there for a while because they're, um, house unexpectedly burned down from a fire. Jesus. Um, so that's been really cool. We also have a community wellness fund that ties in with our savings program. So for our savings program, like every month when you're saving money, if you, we have different rules. And for instance, like if you're late to bringing money in that month for your savings, 
uh, you have like a small, small fee and that small fee goes to our wellness fund. And basically our wellness fund would be to help the community if somebody unexpectedly died and they need help burying that person or if, you know, unexpected medical fees or whatever, just to, just to really, you know, cause we really are a community organization. Pauline Julia, you know, not only is it 600 women in our women's association, a thousand registered students, 30 schools, two districts that we work in, you know, dozens of different community organizations that we're working with. Like we are an entire community and eventually like ultimately we want to be a global community. And you know, right now we are Ugandan led, but we're globally supported and we do rely on funds globally. Um, but our goal in the next five years would be to be able to sustain ourselves in Uganda. So, um, seeing the progress you've made from when you had this idea until right now. And then if you look at right now and project five years into the, to the future, I mean, I personally see that as totally reasonable and no big deal. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. That's how you got to think of it, right? Uh, we have a very hardworking team, and, like, Henry's leading it, and he's doing it, an amazing job. Um, I don't want to ramble too much, because obviously yeah, I've just, just been straight talking. It's for, like, uh, very impressive stuff. There is a honestly. few other projects I would like to That's touch cool. on. So one of our biggest projects that we've done two years, and our third year is going to be this January, is a week-long residential camp that we have. It's called PJ Girl Guide Week. And basically, it's based off of, like, a traditional Girl Scout, Girl Guide-style camp. And it's eight days, eight nights. It's a free camp. We open it up to 200 girls in the community. Where's this at? It's in Uganda. In Uganda. Yeah, it's in uh, Chiboga, which is the the district that we primarily work in. So we primarily work in Chiboga and Chankwanzi, which are two neighboring districts in central Uganda. We have done a few projects in northern Uganda, and we've done a few projects in Kenya because we have a a few contacts in Kenya, and one of the members of our team who is our main photographer, Martha, she's Kenyan. Okay. Um, But primarily we work in Chiboga and Chankwanzi, and um, our office is in the the center of town in Chiboga. So, which is really great because it's like a nice hub that people can come and, um, you know, get help and also get community. And to circle back, like a big part of the women's association was because, you know, these 600 women, most of them are single mothers or at the very least mothers, they didn't have that community where they could come together and just get advice and support from other mothers. So that's been like probably the coolest thing. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, that absolutely. Could, like, mean everything with like you. You don't even think of that. You yeah, know, it's at, one of those free things. This community, just talk to people, just sounding boards, just you know, support in within your community of just people like you. Like that's kind of what it's all about, right? A hundred percent. And like that's been like some of the coolest stuff that have come from our projects is kind of just like the social aspects, or just giving people something to look forward to, or something to enjoy, or you know, showcasing people's talents. But anyway, PJ Girl Guide Week, eight day sleepover yeah. camp. It's a residential camp, and it started out like, you know, it's in between when kids are in school, and so they have this nice little vacation, but it's not a complete vacation because there is educational elements to it, so it's like a nice transition between being in school, being on break, and being back in school. We have some, like, traditional... I think you'll like where I'm going with this. I do already like We have some traditional, like, uh, like workshops and classes that would be more like school-esque classes, but then most of our... Most of our, like, days are spent in a more comprehensive or practical approach to education. So, to give a few examples, we had, uh, last PJ Girl Guide Week, we had, um, one project that was, like, a banana project. So, they have a banana in Uganda called Matoke, which is very similar to, like, a plantain. And it's a big, it's a big crop, and it's an essential staple to people's meals. So, we had one lesson where the girls were brought directly into the farmland, and they learned about how Matoke was grown, 
how matoke was harvested, basically, like, you know, how to cut it down. I don't know all the terminology of farming. No, I can't. But um, how every, how from, you know, from seed to growth, how to cut it down, how to carry it back, traditional ways that people carry the matoke on their heads in bunches. So that was the first lesson, and it was in the field. So they got to see exactly how it was grown. Then they got to, um, then they got to, have, like, a nutrition um, teaching about, like, the nutrition of matoke, about the history and uh, the tradition and why it's such a big part of the community, all that kind of thing. Then they got to learn how to cook it, which was like a uh, cooking class. So they learned how to peel it. They learned how to cook it. There's a certain way that the matoke is cooked in the banana fibers to keep it like warm. And it's very interesting. And so that was like a practical cooking lesson. And then the fourth step was they learned how to then sell it if they decide that they want to be businesswomen. So it was like a practical approach where they're learning much more than just, here's a banana. That's awesome. Um, another example was we did um, we did a jewelry project, and the girls learned, the girls got to, you know, make jewelry like anybody would at a Girl Scout camp and just enjoy that. And then they learned how to package it, they learned how to sell it if they wanted to sell it, um, which was cool. And then later that week, um, they had opportunities where they could sell to their family or their communities. And then whatever money they earned could go back to small things they would need for school and school fees and things along those lines. So, Very um, practical. yeah. And then a third Very example helpful. was we had, so sex education is a fundamental pillar of what we do. We've taught sex education to thousands of people, both young and both old. And, um, I believe personally that sex education is so, so fundamental and so important and globally is something that I feel like many women do not have the opportunity to have autonomy over their sex lives, whether that be something as dramatic or as unsettling as, you know, choice being taken away from them in a situation of like rape Mm -hmm. or domestic abuse. Um, or whether that just be women having autonomy over their pleasure or having autonomy over, if they want to have children and their choice to have children or their choice to take birth control or all of those things, a lot of women globally, including myself at different points in my life, have not had the opportunity to have that education. I mean, even us, you know, we were taught abstinence-only education. Right. And that's really limiting us in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And so sex education is a really big project that we do and we've done since the get-go, and it's been something that I've always wanted to work with. Um, so at PJ Girl Guide uh, Week, we did a sex education class, and that was a very comprehensive sex education class um, because I believe that it is important for it to be comprehensive. And what I mean by comprehensive is we talk about all different types of um, pre- like prevention, whether that be abstinence, whether that be birth control, whether that be condoms. We talk about consent, which is often really taught not take. I was going to say it's yeah. probably not even a concept. It's not even a concept. Well, a lot of places, you know, even in the U.S., it's not something that's taught in that's school. What I mean, if our sex education is so fucked up, I can imagine what it's like in somewhere like Africa. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's, it's bad across the board. It's bad across the board, <laughs> even in the I mean. U.S. So, yeah, it's um, bad everywhere, and it's a very weird kind of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, so, so yeah, so like, and and other than just like you know whether it be, like, prevention and things like that and consent. We also talked about healthy relationships. Um, really, as so comprehensive it goes beyond just sex ed. That's kind of, like yeah. you said, it's a more practical approach, which is important. Exactly. And, like, our first, you know, our first step is always, like, like we have um, different types of sex ed for different age groups. So, like, when we well, teach, yeah. when we go into school and we teach to 11-year-olds, a lot of it is, you know, you should be focusing on school, you know, Try not to have sex. Try not to fall into these traps of, you know, some of these older men that can be predatory. 
here's people that you can talk to, here's resources if you really need it, if you do find yourself pregnant, like, here's people that you can come to, that kind of thing. Wow. And then when we're, like, you know, 14, 15, it's more like, okay, still try to be abstinent. A real with them? Yeah, still try to be abstinent, or if you're not abstinent, you know, try to stick with one partner because HIV is such a problem there. But if that's not something you're going to do, absolutely use a condom every time. And also, here's where you can get birth control if you need it, like birth control pills or you know, IUDs or other things along those lines. And and ultimately, like, if you need help, if you're pregnant or whatever, if you have an STD, here's who you can go to. And, like, we're not going to judge you. We're not going to shame you. And, like, here's how we can help you. And then the adult stuff is, like, we go, like, into, like, all different things. Well, yeah. I mean, um, and this is, like, stuff they wouldn't know or wouldn't have resources to or, like, nobody's telling them. Uh, most of the schools that we work in, I mean, don't have sex education. However, you know, like we said, we usually don't reach out to the community. The community reaches out to us. So pretty much most of the schools that we've taught at have come to us and been like, we really want a sex education program. We don't have one. Could you send a few people in and host a class? And they gather like the students who are of the age that they think is appropriate. And then they bring them in and we talk to them. That's Um, that's what's crazy, right? Because like you said at the beginning, we, like you personally had a such a misconstrued idea of what Africa was, right? Like, yeah. just where it is. And, like, so does, I think, basically everybody that doesn't know. You <laughs> basically know? everybody in like, the U.S., yeah. You know, they just, geographically, what it's like, like, what's the cities like? Like, what's it like going to Uganda? Maybe you could talk about that later. Like, what's it actually like? I would love to talk versus, about that, yeah. And, like, then you're getting into the infrastructure of their education system. And, like, holy shit, right? Like, you might yeah. as well be on another planet. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, like, we can do our best to try to relate and try to, like, think, like, what goes on? What are they not? Well, I think taught? that, like, in some ways, and I, and I don't think, no fault to you necessarily, but I think in some ways that's even a problematic mindset. Like, in a lot of ways, their education or their society is more progressive than ours. I'm sure. And in a lot of ways, it's less. It's just different. Yeah. You know, and a lot of ways, it's and very similar. We can't even figure our own It's out, nuanced. It's a nuanced point. conversation for sure. You know? Um,. Yeah, so sex education. <laughs> I love tangents. <laughs> I mean, you're doing a great thing. You're, yeah. you're definitely helping, right? It's definitely an important conversation. I feel like a lot of people aren't comfortable with the sex ed conversation, even here. Well, we've had some, so like Henry, you for know? instance, I mean, he's obviously not, we have a, a, we have like three or four full-time staff, and then we have a lot of people that work for us for freelance, or also our women's association is very similar to a co-op, where it's women will give time, whether that be time cooking for an event, or time, you know, setting up chairs or tents, or whether that be teaching, whatever, babysitting, the women will give time, and then we will give them resources, whether that be skill training, whether that be scholastic materials for their student for their kids, so it's like, it's a co-op type um, situation, but we do have, um, we do have a pretty big, whether it be staff or freelance workers, um, but Henry does do a lot of, a lot for our organization, and I was sitting in a sex education class with him last year and listening to him talk. And some of the things that he was saying were so radical. And I mean that in the best way. And so like, like one of the things he was saying when I was listening, I was just sitting and I was observing and, um, you know, kind of expecting that maybe he would say something that I didn't like and that we would have a conversation about that because I am somebody who's so sex positive. Um, and one of the things he said was, um, he was, Because in addition to, like, basic sex ed, we also do reproductive health. So we talk about, like, you know, how babies are made and how the menstrual system works and menstrual health and uh, menopause and all of that. So it's it's a very comprehensive, very extensive sex education. um, uh, What's the word? Curriculum. And so, um, thanks. (laughs) Curriculum was the word I was looking for. 
so one of the things he was saying, he was showing a diagram of the female reproductive system. And he asked girls, like, okay, like, what is this area right here? And all of the girls were really shy and felt really uncomfortable and didn't want to say the word vagina. Um, and then he said something that I thought was really powerful. And he says a lot of really powerful things. He's a very, very well-spoken person. Um, and he was like, vagina, the words vagina. If you feel so uncomfortable about speaking about, like, a part of your body, how are you ever going to feel comfortable enough to set boundaries? How are you ever going to feel comfortable enough to go to somebody for help? Like, this is a part of your body. There shouldn't be shame around the word vagina. There shouldn't be shame around these topics about menstruation or about sex or about any of these things. And as long as you are ashamed of these things, like, you're not going to have sexy, uh, sorry, sexy, healthy sexual relationships or healthy romantic relationships or healthy health relationships with your body and with yourself and and that's fundamental first, is to not be ashamed of your body parts or about basic human functions. And, like, so things like that are also taught in these conversations. But to get back to my point, um, at Peter Grogood, we, we had a sex education talk, and we wanted to extend that, um, and we wanted to... Obviously, rape and sex are different things, but rape is a problem everywhere. You know, I think... Absolutely. One in three, I might be skewing these statistics, I think like one in three men are raped in their lives and like one in, no, I think one in four men and one in three women are raped in their lives. So rape is obviously like a part of the world. And we also wanted to give girls like skill sets that they feel a little bit more comfortable in the world and just existing in the world. And also like skill sets of like, okay, or not skill sets, but information about where they could go for help. So another thing that we did in addition to the lessons on sex education was have self-defense classes. And we did seven full days of karate classes. And it was... is in charge of the classes, like, for stuff like this? Like, who writes the curriculums? Who is, like, the martial arts teacher or the... Like, who... Well, we... A lot of it is freelance workers. So, like, the martial arts teacher we hired, he was just somebody who lived in the community who often traveled to the capital and was a martial arts instructor professionally. I mean, that's badass. Yeah. And as far as, like, the actual classes, like, the sit-down classes, we have teachers in the community who do it, who are already teachers and who are already working. And they just do do it because they want to? Yeah. Okay. Which is what's really cool about it. Everything's volunteer. Everything's volunteer. Of this, of all the projects we do, PJ Girl Guide Week is just such a labor of love from the community because... For, well, that's really gratifying, I'm sure. Yeah, but to yeah. have, like, an eight-day, eight-night experience for 200 students, a free experience, Yeah. the amount of people that have to be involved with that. I mean, we need teachers. We need people. There are women who helped cook. And can you imagine cooking three meals and a snack for eight days and eight nights for 200 people plus staff? And a lot of them did it voluntarily because they were like, well, my daughter's coming to us for free. It's the highlight every year and I want to help. It's awesome. And it's cool as hell. Fuck yeah. So the, the karate classes were really incredible because you could just see the increase in girls like feeling like more autonomous, feeling more confident feeling like they could make boundaries in their life. They could say no. They could have choices for themselves. And that expands so much more beyond, like, sexual choices or whatever. Just realizing, like, I'm a strong, confident human being, and, like, I can make choices for myself. And the theme of 2019's PJ Girl Guide Week was self-love is the key to success. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the theme for 2020 will be. but kind of hard to top that one. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty fundamental. The, the beauty about all this stuff is, is, like, Everything, all the lessons you're teaching them and everything you're doing, I mean, it can be applied to anything. Yeah. You know, like just building self-confidence, building stronger people, nurturing people with information that they're not, for whatever circumstances, whether they're born into it, whether 
you know, they don't have parents that they're not made available to, you're helping, and that's, you know, that could be done here, it could be done in Africa, it doesn't matter, you know, that Absolutely. stuff is just building a better, better people with a better, a better world, which and is personally, like, the idea. Yeah, I think we're all global citizens, but I do believe that people should start in their own communities, in their own lives, like, I, I believe that, like, my life and how I help people starts with who I am, just with my friends, or with people that I know, or in my community, in my house, and my family, you know, right. so. I mean, yeah, you really, I mean, I can you know, a test for those that don't know you, you really do live this shit, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, uh, I mean, that's so refreshing though. Cause I f- feel like it's so easy to like call bullshit when people are like trying so hard to help people and like be quote unquote charitable. You're like I kind of, maybe that's just my cynicism, but I kind of always look at people with a skeptical eye, like what's really going on behind the scenes, but there's yeah. none of that with you at all. Well, I mean, I definitely want to say, like, I'm open to criticism. I also want to say... Well, you should be. So, obviously, but... like, in this situation, I'm, like, the voice piece for... I don't know if that's even a term. The I'm the speaker for this organization because I'm the representative here right now and one of the co-founders. But I don't want to center myself because the organization is so much bigger than one individual, let alone me, you know? Mm-hmm. It's entire communities it's different countries it's global it's like i said it it is so much more than just one person so that hard to wrap your head around sometimes yeah it's pretty wild i because like think about that shit i honestly just feel lucky to be involved that's awesome yeah it's a it's a privilege for me to be involved and it's it's exciting and i feel blessed hashtag (laughs) hashtag blessed me too um but yeah so our pj girl god week leads up this is so extra i i know our projects are very over the top but if eight days and eight nights wasn't enough of, like, tie-dye and cooking and all of this stuff that's exhausting for people planning it, we have to make it more exhausting. So we have it all lead up to a final event, and that community event is open to the entire community. It's mostly made up of family of the girls who attended, the 200 girls that attended, partner schools, local politicians, local leaders. Um, but basically, it's a celebration, and the most basic concept is that it's a celebration of girls and women. It's saying that we as a community are coming together, we see the amazing work that these girls have done this week, and we see the amazing work that they do all year in school and all year in the communities, and that we're going to invest our time, our resources in, in girls in the community because we believe that they're a pillar of our community. And so like that's like in the most basic form the point of the of the final day, but to be extra as possible, uh, we had a full parade with 200 girls. All They all had different shirts depending on their age group. They had different colors, and it was color-coordinated. We had a marching band. We had jugglers, baton twirlers. And they all walked from where their camp was, which was at a local school who hosted the event. We've had two different local schools host, and both of them have been partner schools, which has been really great, and opened up their campuses to us. So they marched from their schools to where the event was. And then that day we had food for the community, which I think there was an estimated 1,300 people that came this year. Um, That was just based on the the seats that were filled, but there were people sitting not in the seats. This is pretty rock and roll. Yeah. This is, like, theatrical, too. Oh, it's theatrical as There's, like, skulls and snakes and, like, Um, and it it all led to there, and, you know, we had food for all the people, we had music and DJs, but what was really exciting about all of it is that the girls could demonstrate what they learned that week. So we had karate demonstrations, we had dance performances of dances they learned that week, choruses sang songs they learned that week, girls performed poems that they wrote that week. Um, girls could sell their jewelry and earn money for their school fees, and every girl was given a certificate, which is really exciting, especially for the younger girls, because they feel like they're being celebrated when their name is called, and a lot of the girls say that that's their favorite part. And then, if we could not get extra enough, 
We gave out Which 200 one? scholarships. Well, we gave out 250 scholarship, right. which included every single girl that went to the, the camp and a few others. We gave out a ton of materials to the partner schools that we work with. Uh, like I said before, building materials, chalk, um, all of those different things. And then we gave, we had a special project for the school that gave, that opened their campus for the week. So we gave them solar panels, which was super exciting because it will help them wow. li- uh, light their school. And, yeah. And actually I'm going to pull up, I'll do a slight pause. I'm going to pull up just to give you. No, that's cool. I'll ramble for a second while you do that. But, uh. You know, your your extraness and your your parades and things that you <laughs> that uh you know are were probably unfathomable unfathomable to you at the beginning of starting this, like you know, you could look at it and say, you know, if you're if you're cynical about it, which I sometimes tend to be, admittedly, um, you know, that's all great. But what's that actually doing, right? But there's really a lot to be said for just especially kids and especially girls and everything like just making people happy yeah. and just doing, doing the right thing and just yeah. making them feel better as people. And that shouldn't be overlooked. I feel like. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and it's very, if the, if the very least we're doing is entertaining people and making people happy. I mean, like even right. the night before this theatrical day, we had a big closing night fire and people like roasted meat kebabs and sang songs and just like seeing like girls get to be kids, you know, yeah, that's, it's pretty cool. That's refreshing. Okay, I got these these stats. Okay, um, let me see. So, one hundred okay. so, yeah, million. Thirteen hundred and fifty people were like projected to come to this event, and we gave out four hundred. So for four hundred and fifty students, we gave out a full year supply of sanitary pads. Two hundred and twenty were given underwear. Five hundred and fifty students were given a year supply of scholastic materials. Two hundred and fifty students were given scholarships. With 60 of those scholarships being full scholarships and 190 being partial scholarships for half the year. Uh, we distributed a bunch of materials to our uh, local schools. And all the materials that we gave to local schools, which included things like chalks, chalk, notebook, markers, netballs, which is a sport that they play there, cement for constructing buildings, soccer balls, that kind of thing, were enough for two terms for the school to sort of, like use them for two terms, which was really cool. Okay. Um... So those are just some of the statistics of the final event that we had. And that's, like, our biggest event of the year. Um, and before PJ Girl Guide existed, that event existed. But for some reason, we're like, let's add nine more days to that. Or eight more just days to that. It. Just Let's just be totally exhausted after. <laughs> so you're killing it on lots of levels with all this. What is your advice to somebody that is just want, wants to help whatever cause they believe in? Like, where do they start? How do they know they're doing the right thing? Uh, that's yeah. probably a super loaded question, but just, like basic what, what what to look for what what to do what not to do my advice might seem totally like hypocritical but my first thing i have advice would be not to start your own project okay <laughs> and no, i genuinely I... thoroughly believe that um because there are so many organizations that already exist and it that are fighting for resources and you're just gonna muddy the waters it's counterproductive well it's counterproductive and it's it's wasting a lot of time and energy and it's counterproductive of like funds, like where funds can be distributed. That being said, I, I do believe like the second thing of advice would be not to start an organization would be to start a project, which granted that's how my story started. I started with that, but a lot of people are not going to do that though. Also, you know, a lot of people just want, Hey, where, where's the bet? I want to donate 10 bucks. 
where, where's the best place to do that? Oh, absolutely. You know oh, so you're I mean? saying like a more simpler terms. Even Yeah, as simple as you can get. And then, you know, may, maybe take it a step further is if I want to get personally involved more. Like, so something like I do. I'll, yeah. make, I'll make this selfish about me just to relate to the listeners forever. I do want Death Comes Lifting to be involved with some sort of charitable organization, especially as we begin to help out do the kids' classes and all that stuff. Yeah. I do want to make sure a portion of our proceeds or T-shirt sales or whatever goes to somewhere that's helpful. Yeah. You know, somewhere that's good. Um, yeah, so take it from so there. So as broadly speaking as take possible. It, as broadly speaking as possible. I feel like helping or helping change the world or helping be a better person or helping different causes you care about first comes with making space for other people. So like if I have if I have space that I have taken up in this world, just stepping back a little bit and being like, let me pass the mic. Like you have um, a podcast. So a great way to use that podcast is be like, all right, let's get different people on here with different perspectives, different people who have experienced things that I haven't experienced, which you've already done. And saying, I'm gonna step back and we'll let you talk about it. And just facilitating that. Using your space that you created, Death Comes Lifting and stepping back and creating space for others. I think that's the Everybody easiest thing people that. can do. Yeah. yeah. And also, and listening. That's the second thing. Listening. Not just creating that space, but actually listening and learning. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the easiest thing that people can do to be, to make the world better, to fight, fight the patriarchy, fight white supremacy, all that. Fight Fuck fascism. Uh, fight the power. <laughs> I just want to interject that I just recently am reading this sign we're in this uh, basement that's the fire escape plan that is uh, taped to the wall. In case of emergency, number one go up the steps and out the front door. Under it, note, if the steps are broken, <laughs> go through the back door. Just wanted to point that out. All right. That's all. That's pretty, that's pretty badass. Uh, I, I feel safer now. Steps break. Yeah, you got you that, got a plan there. It's on yeah, the wall. Um, so if you're going to try to change the world, I feel like that plan is pretty, Have a plan. It's pretty applicable. Have a plan. Like, go up the steps and out the front door. If that shit's broken or on fire, go out the back door. Yeah. Boom. I'd say, okay, so the three fundamentals, not not taking up space in in arenas that you shouldn't be taking up space in, um, something you haven't lived or experienced yourself, and, like and, and, and creating space though. for other people. You know, people yeah. see a problem, they're like, okay, I'll donate to that, but... Let me, I, give, my, let me give my little three steps. All right, all right, all right. The second is listen. And then the third is to be your authentic self, to share your experiences. If you That's have suffered up. with mental illness or That's eating disorders, up. which I guess would be under the category of mental illness, or you've experienced some type of abuse or whatever, is being your authentic self and sharing that with others. And honestly, like, I, and I feel like this should have been number one. Number one would be take care of yourself and love yourself. That's definitely number That's one. That's huge. That's, well... When is that not number one? Is that's that, number one in is, everything across the board. Is that ever not number one in your opinion? That's, that's number one in everything across the board. If so. you want to be a good person, if you want to help the world, you have to help yourself first. You cannot pour from an empty cup. Exactly. And I'm also, like, I mean, to get into later a whole other mm-hmm. subject about myself, like, I spent 20 years, like, violently hating myself. And it was not sustainable. And I got to a point where it was like, I either change or there's no more me. You know? Word. So, like, love yourself first. That's Med- number one. Meditate. It'll help you. Forgive yourself. Give yourself room to make mistakes. But also, hold yourself accountable. When you make mistakes, be like, you know what? I made this, this mistake. I need to listen. I need to learn. I need to change. And I need to not make this mistake again moving forward. 
So, you know, obviously forgive yourself and not, you know, not be too harsh on yourself, but to hold yourself accountable. That's like my broad advice. As for more specifics, I mean, That's there's awesome. tons of great organizations. Um, if you want to look more into like financials, you can look at, um, there's different tools like Charity Navigator. If you go to Charity Navigator, type in a nonprofit, you can get all their tax forms. You can see where their money's broken up. If that's something you care about. Um, or you could just ask around. I mean, there's big ones that I think are always going to be great to support. Like Planned Parenthood, I will always support Planned Parenthood. ACLU, another great one. I mean, like, there's those are bigger organizations. Again, broadly speaking, you know, obviously, like, there are exceptions to this rule. I genuinely believe more impact comes from small organizations. More impact comes from community-led movements, community-led organizations that might only work in one community. When Pauline Julia started, we wanted it to be a global, or it is a global organization in that it's a global ethos, it's a global community. But we wanted to work in 10, 20 different countries. And then we realized we could create something much more powerful if we just stick to one district, two districts. Start at the roots. Or even just start and end there, you know? If we're changing and we're helping people and we're creating something powerful, it doesn't need to do everything. We don't need to spread ourselves too thin or bite off more than we can chew, you know? We need to do what we're doing and do it right. And, uh, and, and that goes back to the consistency thing. Be consistent. Start with something you believe in, even if it's something small, be consistent with it and do it right and find out how to do it right and learn and listen and, and not just, you know, assumptions make an ass out of you and me. That's the, that's the, that's the expression. Ethos yeah. right there. Or assuming makes an ass out of you. Yeah. Where do you see this and yourself in 10 to 15 years? So the goal for Pauline Juliet is to make myself obsolete. Right now, That's what I'm talking about dude. It's um, awesome. Every, in my opinion, me too. Every leader should want to eventually be obsolete because yeah. I there should no longer be a need for them. Right. There should not even, even if we're being if we're being really radical or really dramatic, every nonprofit should start wanting to eventually be obsolete because there won't be gender inequality. There won't be patriarchy. There won't be. Every school have sex education. The taboo would change. Yeah, maybe that's thousands of years. Maybe that's not my lifetime. But every nonprofit, every organization, every cause, its goal should be to become obsolete. And I think it, that should start by the first goal should be to be sustainable, and the second goal should be to be obsolete. How punk rock is that, though? <laughs> you think so? I think so. It's like basically like I'm creating this thing. I'm like creating this empire, basically just to like engulf myself in it. And, like, make myself, diminish myself, like, show my humility to the point where I don't even matter. But, like, this cause, this music, whatever it is, speaks so much louder than me that, like, I basically just killed myself. Yeah. Like, you know. I think that that's the difference between a white savior and a ethical global partnership. Boom. <laughs> um, but also, like, you know, I've been working toward that for a while. I'm in, so my role, technically, in addition to being the co-founder... I'm the U.S. country director, so that means I'm not in charge of any leadership of projects in Uganda. I am a board member, so I have, like, a a say, and I have, like, I can contribute my opinions, but I'm just in charge of things happening in the U.S. So that would be fundraising, social media, uh, networking, financial stuff. Doing shit like this. Yeah, so stuff that anybody could really do and doesn't involve, like, the actual leadership. Um, but, yeah, so in the next five years, my goal would be to make myself obsolete and no longer be a quintessential role of the organization and move myself into a secondary role, whether that be a board member or just a volunteer, somebody who donates and volunteers when they can and, you know, supports the cause. Um, as far as five-year goals for the organization, you know, we have foundational goals. Like, you know, we do have an office, we do have a staff, we want to grow that staff. 
asked so that we can employ more um, single women and also just employ more people in the community, more broadly speaking. Uh, we want to also, like, we've had a lot of big organizations, like big household names approach us, like um, World Vision, uh, Peace Corps, both of which have come to us saying, we want to partner with you, we want to give you resources to do gigantic projects, projects that are way bigger than anything we've done, but we need you to do X, Y, and Z of this bureaucracy before you can get there. So things like having a, you know, a chain of commands and having documentation and that kind of stuff. So that's like the big goals for the next five years. Other than that, sustaining the projects that we have right now and, um, and slowly growing the projects that we have right now. The hope is that we won't start more projects, but we start project like every other day. It's a, it's, it's a flaw. Like we have other things that I haven't even addressed. Like we have, um, I feel that on a deep, <laughs> on a deep level. Trust me. We have, uh, we have businesses. We have, um, a tent and tra- chair rental business. And the purpose of that is for every event, every community event we had, we were paying a ton to rent chairs and tents. So we bought our own to save money. And then we were like, we could rent these out to the community for their events. And we could do it at a smaller cost so that they could have more events and they can buy these or have these products. And then we can make some money that can go back to our cause. Or we also have a jewelry project where we train women in making paper beads which is a um, African, I'm not exactly sure where its origins are in Africa, but an African project where beads are made out of recycled materials and they're handmade and then the jewelry itself is handmade, turned into necklaces and uh, bracelets and earrings. And so then the women are given certificates where they have that skill set and they have learned that and then we sell the jewelry and the money goes back to the Women's Association, things along those lines. So we do have a lot of other projects that I never even got to and I'm not going to. I promise that I will stop talking. Next time. (laughs) But um, that's Paul and Juliet. Is there any any other things that you had? Uh... You uh, covered Paul and Julia pretty well, and there's a lot of things I didn't know in there that I'm glad that you talked about. So don't yeah. feel bad for rambling because I was generally interested. I do. Before we like close this subject, I do want to talk a little bit about what you mentioned a while ago, which was misconceptions about Uganda that I might have had. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be uh, amazing. Um, I think, or that... just Africa in general, because when people say, if you tell people you're going to Uganda, I bet 80% of people think you're going to the jungle in Africa. Yeah. I mean, I have visited areas that are bush or jungle areas. I've been to rainforest in, in Kenya and, um, but... Well, but when you say Africa, that's yeah. what most people think of. Yeah. Like, and that's it. That's like... Or like Sahara. No, I, I feel like most people don't even know Egypt's in Africa. Yeah. Or Morocco. Right. Or, yeah. Or South Africa is like, I mean, most and of the I'm not geographically like all that inclined. You no, know? Me neither. I'm not, I'm, not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying I have the answers to everything. I'm saying uh, there's huge misconceptions. I mean, I get funny. I use the word funny, funny comments all the time, which are coming from a harmless place, but like ultimately stem from a little bit of racism, a little bit of xenophobia, a little bit of... Or just general ignorance. Ignorance, yeah. yeah. Um, which is not negative. It just is. Yeah. And like, like comments, like when I got back, when the, when the most recent, or I guess not most recent, but most recent big Ebola scare happened. I came back from Uganda like that month and I got so many comments. They're like, oh my God, I'm just scared of Ebola. And I was like, there have been less cases of Ebola this year in Uganda than there have been in the U.S. I had more of a chance of getting Ebola in the U.S. than I did in Uganda. Also, people were like, what about all those outbreaks in Africa? And I'm like, that's in West Africa. That's so far from East Africa. Yeah, that'd be like people, what about those fires in California, like here? But <laughs> way know? worse, way farther, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, but that's exactly what it would be like. Right. And uh, so stuff like that, or like just really, really ignorant comments that can sometimes be super offensive and super belittling to the people that I work with. Like, you know, 
But the people they, I work with are Do they know they're being belittle, belittling and offensive when they make these comments? No, just, but sometimes it can be very upsetting to me because it's like I don't. Why we need to educate them? I work with incredible, capable individuals who are, in some ways, more capable or more intelligent or more skilled than I will ever be. And so, like, for people to assume that the people I work with are just like helpless, hopeless, that's not that as white people. That's not like that's coming from a place of power. When you say like when you're coming into charity or you're coming into anything with the assumption that the people like if you were working with people like if you were working out with people like who are out of shape and you were coming from a place of look at this poor hopeless slob who can't get their life together that's a power move that's saying i'm up here you're down here and i pity you and look how great i am for spending my time to help this poor hopeless soul that's not that's not community development that's, the that's not that's not what that's that's not okay that's not a helpful mindset you know if i if i really believed that about the people i would be working with i don't think i would be doing good work um i'm coming from a place of these people are just as capable just as amazing just as whatever as i am and you know human beings and they have had different circumstances and they deserve the same opportunity that i do in this life you know what i mean so uh a lot of people who talk to me even people who have donated to me really have this this mindset that those people are poor, helpless people. And that is a very problematic. And, and whose fault is that that they have that mindset? Is that just general society misinforming them? I mean, that's think, whitewash do you think history. The, do you that's... think these people are just, like, you know, fucked up racist individuals? Or, like... A little bit of both. You think? Okay. I mean, I mean there's I'm, two I'm, different, I'm asking because There's I don't two know. different types of... Well, there's probably more than two different types of racism. This is coming from a white woman, but I would say there's two big types of racism. There's... I hate people of color, I hate black people, they're yeah, less than me. The traditional And there's, sense. oh, I feel so bad for these people, and oh, like, um, you know, they're, they're so, they just, they, they're just so helpless and poor, and and what what you really need to do is step back, and or the, the colorblind racism of we're all the same, and what you really need to do is, like, step back and recognize, yeah, maybe we are all, we're all human, we're all whatever, we all blue, red, whatever, however, we don't all have the same circumstances. We live in a structure that is, and has historically, and is to this day, a white supremacist structure. I mean, many of the people that I work with are still dealing with effects of colonialism. To make a, what's wild is so many of the people that I talk to will make negative comments about Uganda or Africa, and it's like, those problems exist because of colonialism, because of the U.S. and other Western countries. They don't exist because of these countries. I mean, Africa in general has been so exploited by the Western world and by imperialism. I mean, all of, like, the major resources have just been stripped from Africa, whether it be diamonds, oil, coffee, chocolate, and, like... Your coffee's the shit. Yeah, and, and yeah, <laughs> I mean, and a lot of it is is from slave labor, and, like, a lot of these people who work in, you know, coffee or chocolate have never even had coffee or chocolate. Yeah, and those communities, those economies should be benefiting from these things, but they've been in- entirely exploited. And, um... So, yeah, so, I mean, it's just wild that people say these comments without recognizing, like, the historical context or, like, the modern-day context, you know? Like, yes, we're all human beings. Yes, like, some people have less opportunity than us, but, like, let's look at the power structures at play. Let's look at, like, why those differences exist. You know what I mean? Like... Well, hey, man, that's why I think music is such a valuable tool and a valuable learning tool because you can really get a glimpse into others' cultures through their music, too, and it's an easy way to teach people. Like, if you gave people some Ugandan music 
or yeah. way, you know, like I'm obviously it's not that Beyonce easy, and but I, think, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're I mean, there's Ugandan music too. I'm just kidding. Uh, I was going to say, right. I mean, I don't know where they're from. Yeah. I mean, obviously oh, well, they're not from, from Uganda, but I didn't know what descent they were. <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, pretty dope. Beyonce's from the U S I'm not sure she knows her lineage. A lot of, a lot of black people in the U S don't because of slavery. Yeah. Um, Rihanna's from Barbados. I mean, at least that's where her family's from. I don't yeah, know. Like, she, she'll be on next week. Yeah. We'll get her. But, uh, way. no, I just, I was just making a joke because like, yeah, like, you know, I think, so I think both mindsets that we are all the same and we are all different are problematic. So like, there's a mindset that like, we're all the same, like colorblind racism or, you know, whatever. And then there's the concept of we're all different and that can lead to something like xenophobia or Islamophobia. And so it's like, if if you just assume that everybody is, like, every culture is just so shockingly different, that's problematic. And if you assume we're all just exactly the same and we don't have different hardships, that's problematic. Everything in life is way more nuanced. So, I mean, than anytime somebody thinks it's 100% black or white, no matter what you're talking about, that's a problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, I mean, unless it's something like... Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a few, there's a few problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so like Uganda, um, there is local Ugandan music. There's, I don't off the top of my head know how many languages are in Uganda. There are a lot of languages. One misconception that a lot of people ask me about, um, English is the national language. So the way that it works is most people will learn their tribal languages within their families. And then when they go to school, they learn English. So if they never went to school or if they're, um, you know, haven't been to school very much, their English might be a little bit broken. Um, but that's another funny thing. That's another racist and xenophobic, xenophobic comment that you get for immigrants in the U.S. And you also get for uh, people that I work with in Uganda where people are like, oh, well, if this person speaks broken English, then they must be uneducated. When in reality, that person might speak four or five different languages and you speak one, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so that's like another comment that I get is people are like, well, how do you communicate there? And, you know, there are a lot of different languages, but English is the primary language. Um, a lot of people listen to a lot of the same music as you hear. I did go to an underground rap battle in Uganda once, which was pretty cool. Fuck yeah. Uh, love, my friends love Tupac, Biggie, um, they love Beyonce, Rihanna, all that stuff. Uh, and they love, it's very popular is like 90s country music. Like Shania Twain. Wow. And like, it's very funny. They love Celine Dion. Big fans of Celine Dion. Interesting. Um, Is it kind of how Germany loves David Hasselhoff? Kinda. I mean, isn't is he has a German though? No, but Germany. He has a huge following in like Berlin or something. Like they think his music's killer. What's his What's his background? I don't know. Okay. I'm glad I don't know. Hasselhoff <laughs> feels German. To I, me. It's, I it, oh, it might, he might be, but it's one of those weird things that like his yeah. music career is like underground and funny everywhere else, but he goes to Berlin <laughs> and it's like great. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they love like uh, lots of. It's, it feels like you're in like an early 2000s, late 90s time capsule in a lot of ways because there's lots of like Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, you know, all that kind of stuff like R and B, and then like you need to take the... some Sabbath. Yeah. That's what we need. Well, a lot we of my, Sabbath I mean, a lot of my friends love, like, would love, like, a lot of punk singers because they love, like, U.S. revolutionaries. Like, a lot of my friends love Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., people like that, and that's punk as fuck. I mean, that's oh, where, yeah. yeah. Take up some bad brains. Punk is all about some social Sabbath. movements. And, um, it's great. Oh, I had a joke, and now I forget it. It's terrible. It's what a loss. Sorry, right. you'll find it later. <laughs> what, find is, it. what is, like, their, uh, like, infrastructure like? Like, their cities, their... Basically, if I flew into Uganda right now, how hard of a job, how hard of a time would I have getting around? 
like would I be able to like is there it, it's a city right yeah like, is there public well, transportation is there public transportation or shit like that um, like how similar to Pittsburgh or somewhere relatable is like a Uganda so Uganda is like a little so uh, Uganda and Kenya are both very close to each other and I'm just gonna like, use these different examples but like Kenya like Nairobi is a very big travel destination for especially people in the tech world it's like Africa's Silicon Valley. And I, Kenya is. Yeah, Nairobi, Kenya. Yeah, Nairobi, Kenya is Africa's Silicon Valley. And it's, uh, it it's it, there's a lot of innovation and there's a lot of tech booming from um, from Nairobi, Kenya. And so Kenya has a lot of like hotels that are geared toward international travelers, like the Hilton, places like that. Uh, Kenya, like Uber is really big and Lyft is really big, at least in like the Nairobi area. Um, in Kampala, which is the capital of Uganda, um, you would fly into Entebbe, but Entebbe is like... 40 minutes, 30 minutes from Kampala, which is their capital. Mm. Um, they probably do have Lyft and Uber, but they're not as big of a thing. Like, mm-hmm. you could probably find that. Um, but mostly in Uganda, which is also in Kenya, but mostly in Uganda there are boda bodas, which are, like, motorbikes. And basically, you would just... You need to get shillings, but you would just give them, like, a couple dollars to drive you to wherever, and you'd sit on the back of them. They also have taxis, but the taxis are all, like, shared rides, where they have, like, white vans... And you would get in a taxi with a couple different people, and they would... It's similar to, like, a bus route where they'd have, like... You could tell somebody, like, I want to go specifically to here. Or you could be, like, this general area, and then you would go on a certain taxi. They have buses. Um, the buses are more, like... I might just personally have not gone on city buses there. I have gone on city buses in Kenya, which are much more much more similar to the ones here. But the buses that I have gone on in Uganda have been more like Greyhounds. Um, like, you get a ticket, they ride you like an hour or two or like across the country i haven't been on a lot that are like stop every few seconds kind of thing um what else i think i I yeah that's that's pretty much yeah Yeah. that paints a good picture yeah um even just the fact that um you know there's a technology boom in kenya i think is so alien to a lot of people like nobody would think that like, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but you know what I mean. The majority of people who you say Kenya, they're not thinking Silicon well, Valley. Well, it's wild. Africa. I mean, there's a um, lot. I, it's it's very similar to San Francisco because, like, in San Francisco, dope. you have this huge economic gap where you have a big part of the U.S. homeless population, and then you have the richest people in the whole country. Yeah. And that's how I don't know if Nairobi. So the biggest slum in Kenya is in Nairobi, Kibera, and it's. Um, you know, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to, like, you know, sensationalize poverty. Um, but it's, you know, the biggest slum in Kenya, and it's a, it's a serious issue. There are a lot of people, thousands of people living in this slum that's miles and miles long and, you know, don't have all of these things, like, running water or whatever. Um, but then there's also, like, the richest people, some of the richest people on the continent. Like Beverly Hills and people, there are Hills There are or... white people living in Kenya living luxurious lives. And then there's also, like, and there's also Kenyans living luxurious lives in Nairobi, and then there's people on the other side of the spectrum. So it's very similar to, like, a San Francisco. Am I talking too much? No. Okay. You're looking at your... Somebody was calling me. That was fun. Mr. Popular. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's Rihanna talking about (laughs) Shane. She can't make it on the the podcast. Oh, dang. Um, Anyway. So, yeah. Good for you, man. That was a lot of good information. A lot I didn't know. I hope I did it justice. I you tend to just start talking, and then like an hour goes by, and I'm like, "What did I even say in that hour?" I'm not really, I'm not really sure. So what are you up to now? Um, like well, with your with your work and stuff, what's what's next on the horizon? I just finished my master's degree. I'm fun employed. Good. 
Um, I've been applying to nonprofits in the Pittsburgh area. I want to work. I want to work. I've spent a lot of years doing international development, and I did. I am kind of at this spot where you know a lot of people, their assumption of me would be that I would continue with international development. And while I have learned a lot in that sphere, and while I do think that I could bring some positive influence to a sector that is, or a sphere that is mostly Western and mostly white, and I think that I could bring a lot of positive change to that sphere, I also feel like why take up more space in an, in a sphere that's already, there's too much space being taken up by Westerners. Um, international development should be another thing that's not, this kind of obsolete. It should be about global partnership, and it should be about community-led initiatives. That's what should exist. We shouldn't... I mean, things like USAID, it's, like, again, very nuanced, where it's, like, USAID does some really great things. They do some really horrible things and some really problematic things. Um, yeah, like most. Yeah, but I guess that's why, like, there should... There needs to be that shift between ethical... Between international development and ethical global partnerships or community-led initiatives. But... So, yeah, a lot of people would assume that that was where, I'm, where I was headed, but I definitely want to work more in the Pittsburgh community... Uh, and doing things in my local community because I've I spent a lot of time with a lot of focus in other communities which has been great um, and I want to do more here so I've been looking for jobs in this area probably going to be working as a barista for a little while just to save some money head back to Uganda in uh, January for PJ Girl Guide Week 2020 doing anything in Pittsburgh's booming punk rock scene coming up <sighs> I mean I'm not a musician well, other, well, <laughs> you're involved in events and going to shows and you yeah know, absolutely you know, uh, I don't know is that a separate po- is this all one podcast this is are all we going to cut one. this into multiple things we can because if you want, like, I feel like, well, should I, I just, just keep I talking just while ra- I... wrapping up just with a few uh, fun things. Because like I have a list of things that I think and... we could talk about that I think would be fruitful, but I don't think that they would all fit into one. They wouldn't thematically fit into one okay. podcast. Yeah, all right. Let's, let's, um, let's not do that, then. Well, let's, like, let's call it a day. All right. So, uh... What's your favorite Black Sabbath album? I knew you were going to ask me this. But are you going to ask me this in the next podcast? No, yeah, I'm going to ask you it also. <laughs> um, I don't really listen to Black Sabbath that much. I do appreciate them as a band. Uh, I like Ozzy. He's fun. Um, I haven't really listened to that much. Uh, and I feel like even if I... Whatever answer I do give probably isn't a great answer because I haven't listened to all their albums. I know that for a fact. So that's can a, I really give really an answer? Yeah. Um, yeah. That being said, I mean... The, the albums I've listened to, I like. I like Volume 4. I like... Awesome. Uh, Masters of Reality... Um, Good for you. I could probably only name like four albums. So, well, like, but those okay. are both great albums. That's all. Hey, a lot of people don't even know who Black Sabbath is, and I ask them this question, and they get all fucked up. So, yeah, that's that's my statement. I'm past question. the stage in my life where I have to like lie or make shit up. To well, why would cool. why would you? I mean, everybody has that stage. Some people die in that stage. I mean, why would you make up that you never you? Oh yeah, that's what I mean. I'm past that, so I'm saying now. I don't know enough to really give you a full answer. However, I think we're going to say that your favorite Black Sabbath album is Volume Four because it's the first I think that's really because it's the first one <laughs> out of your mouth, and I think that's really cool. I think um, that like of what I've listened to, I think that's my favorite. Who is the most Which, important band to you? Wait, what's your favorite? Uh, my favorite Black Sabbath album is yeah. Sabotage, hands down. It's okay, number I'll have six. to go and listen to that. But yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's fucking amazing. It's what, very progressive. It's very cool. It's very weird. It's wild. I love weird. I love progressive. I love cool. I love wild. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you know that Black Sabbath, I might be getting the numbers wrong, but like adjusted for inflation, spent like, I think it was $36,000 on cocaine to make volume four. 
that hurts me. Yeah, that yeah. hurts. Or it was, it was like, it was, it was, if it's a big number, I, it might be more than that. It, it's, uh, it's to sidetrack this, to please don't do cocaine. There, I just keep hearing all these stories about being laced with fentanyl and so many people die. Oh yeah, it's horrible. And it's really horrifying. And just public service announcement. Yeah, a lot of people are doing it. Or at the very least, like, know where your things are coming from. And in the 70s, it was much different. Yeah. Yeah, it's not now. But But I did like that little fact. That was a fun fact. That was fun. You know? They Um, don't do that anymore. Rock and roll ain't like it used to be. Yeah. You know? The fuck? Now people are putting fentanyl in it. Or killing Well, your second question was about what (laughs) what my favorite band is or what the band is that I'm most... What's the most important band to you? You know what my answer's gonna be. Why not? (laughs) The fuck? All right, I mean, I'll give a long... Answer because we got to tie in some simple. music into this, or what death comes with. My favorite band and the most important band to me is definitely Nirvana. Um, I feel like, and I know that maybe that's cliche to some people or whatever, but Kurt Cobain fundamentally changed my life in so many ways, and like, without being a cliche, saved my life. I was very sad and very suicidal for many years of my life, and was a big part of catharsis for me, and was was very helpful in in that growing experience for me. So Nirvana is definitely the most important band to me. Uh, I don't think they're the best band ever, but they're the most important they're band. They're the most important band either. That makes um, sense. But I also have, you know, a few others that are, are worth mentioning. Uh, yeah. Uh, which are not gonna... I'm, I'm I don't want to get on a pedestal, but... Do it. I will. I, I don't want to, but I will. So my... If you I need shot down, I'll try to shoot you down. My secondary is Beyonce. And Queen. my pedestal is... Beyonce is the most punk performer currently performing. If you know anything about Beyonce... So, I guess it depends on your definition of what punk is. And that, I feel like, is a whole nother comment well, conversation let, let for me, a whole nother... Give me your definition of punk real quick. Well, I feel like... So, Let's go. punk is not... There's punk music. There's punk fashion. There's, you know... Like everything else. Punk social movements. There's punk zines. There's art movements. At its core. Punk is not music. Punk is not the fashion. Those are all just vehicles for what punk is, and punk is a socio-political movement of both fighting for the oppressed and by the oppressed, fighting power structures. That is what punk is. And it can bleed into music, it can bleed into fashion by being different, or zines that are about spreading information. And I also feel like punk is kind of what we talked uh, with the documentary and was talking about on Tuesday, which is... You know, punk is academia and learning and growing. Punk is about being your best self. Punk is about community. Punk is about, you know, grassroots social movements and um, and love and all of that stuff. Punk is not just angry. Punk is not just angry white men. <laughs> but, you know, like, well, honestly, the, the few the bands... The Bad Brains kind of pioneered hardcore, so they're angry black men, so... They're but they're, angry there's people. a difference between, and I mean, punk is not just about being whiny and angry about, like, how your girlfriend broke your heart. Punk is about feeling and a lived experience of anger for, you know, all the, the phobias. Homophobia, sexism, racism... Transphobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia, the oppressed. I mean, classism. Punk is about giving a space for people whose space was taken away from them. That's right. The indigenous in our country, immigrants. And I think even, like, current punk... And I'm not saying... I'm I'm not trying to be, like, inflammatory. I'm not saying that there's not a space for white men in that community. I mean, there are a lot of ways that white men can be oppressed from class to sexuality, whatever. 
But what I'm saying is it's not just, I'm so angry, I'm so whiny, I have teenage angst because my mom won't let me go to the show. It's about, it's about power structures and it's about, it's, it's political. Punk is political and if it's not, then it's probably not. It's an attitude. It's It's a lifestyle. Absolutely. And so I feel that it's not, and I think most people would say, like, even like fashion, punk fashion is cool as hell. But I think a lot of people would even argue if you feel like what you're wearing is a uniform or like you have to wear it to be punk, then that's not punk. True. Punk is about autonomy. Punk is about self-expression. Um, punk is about freedom, to quote Kurt Cobain. And so like starting with that definition of punk, of it being a voice for the voiceless, or that's a bad expression because nobody's voiceless, but passing the mic or about, you know, anger and and doing something for for catharsis and for change then Beyonce is so punk. I mean, starting even, like, early in her career, doing things like, you know, going and performing at the Super Bowl in um, Black Panther, like, garb, and, you know, doing Black Power Fist, or, you know, performing at the VMAs and having feminist and big letters behind her head. People don't really, like, read into Beyonce's lyrics, but a lot of them are about just as much as, like, you know, Wu-Tang Clan, or I don't really listen to Wu-Tang Clan, so I don't want to speak for Wu-Tang Clan, but other bands, other bands that you listen to, you know, are speaking about, those bands are also punk. Speaking about issues like police brutality, sexism, you know, like, and Beyonce's taking on a lot of these big subjects, you know, and, and she has been for decades. I mean, even, like, uh, on her self-title album, she had songs about eating disorders and about body image and about loving yourself. Self-love is, like, a huge theme in Beyonce's work. Um, you know, all of these different things that are, I think, fundamental to punk. And she does a lot of really cool community work. And one of the coolest things about her is, I mean, as somebody who has some privilege in her community, she's worked a lot towards employing other black women. Like if you ever see her live, her drummer is a black woman, her guitarist is a black woman, like, and she, she really is dedicated to, to helping her community, which I think is really incredible. And ultimately what punk is about, it's about helping your community. So she's not an Illuminati alien. No, she addresses that. In her you don't think songs. so? All right. Have you ever heard Formation? No, I never heard Formation. All all you haters are corny for this Illuminati, Illuminati mess. That's her, her lyric. That's She could have done better than that. She could have done better I, than that. You but, think- I, but, I, but I know what she's trying to say. <laughs> I, I get it. She could take some lyrical advice from her husband, but that's cool. Um, have you listened to the Carter's album? That, that one's great. It's Beyonce and Jay-Z? No, it's I really listen to old Jay-Z. I'm cool like that. I don't know. It's pretty good. Is it new? Is it, it like, did, like just come out? Like, not, not 2019 summer, like, 2018 summer. It's really good. I bet it's, it is. Um, no, she's very talented. And she's also, like, I think it's wild. People like to be contrarian, and they, they also think that's what punk is. They think punk is just being devil's advocate. It's not what punk is. If devil's advocate is standing up against... We can be a real dick and be a devil's advocate. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just... Just being contrarian in itself is not punk, and a lot of people think that's what it is. It's just saying, whatever, I'm not doing what the mainstream is doing. It's about fighting... It's about fighting oppression, in my opinion. And I think in a lot of people's It's about opinion. standing up for what you believe in in the face of basically everything else, in my opinion. And I think some that's of the... That's all I've ever equated punk to is doing what you, I think that's also want, doing like what a, you want to do. I think that's also a great... But I don't think that it's just do whatever you want. I don't think it's just literally, like, do drugs, break shit. Like, I don't... I think well, people think that that's Sometimes what it is. you don't want to do that, though. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. that doesn't... Just because you say do whatever you want does not always mean that's negative, self-destructive, indulgent behavior. I was just, just taking it to an extreme. Being who but you like, want to be. But, like, even, like, you know, going back to, like, Ian McKay and Minor Threat, like, for him, punk was about 
being his most clear self, you know, not doing drugs if you don't want to do drugs, not drinking if you don't want to drink, not feeling pressured to have sex or pressured, you know, those kinds of things. And if you look at, like, some of who I think are, like, influential punk musicians, whether that be in the hardcore scene with Henry Rollins or Ian McKay or whether that be in the Riot Girl scene with, you know, whatever, quintessential Riot Girl bands, Kathleen Hanna. I mean, there's there's dozens of people that I could mention drop name, name drop, but I think all of them, for the most part, have the same concept of what punk is. And I think that, but I think that the mainstream has this other idea of what it is. And they just think it's, they just think it's teen angst or well, something. that's true with everything else. The mainstream fucks everything up. It's absolutely true. Ruin everything. I mean, any great social movement is going to have terrible people involved. I mean, you talk to... Absolutely. There's, there's some really shitty feminists. There's TERFs, which are trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They suck. And they're a sect of feminists. There's really terrible vegans. There's really terrible meat eaters. Yeah, there's we didn't really... even talk about vegans. That's something we want that, to talk about. We'll have to talk about it later. <laughs> so, I'm just saying, in a lot of ways, like, any social movement or any movement or any group, there's going to be people who are usually the loudest, and usually those people are misrepresenting that group. Loudly and badly. And so then the general public believes something about a group that might not be true, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like we'll stop there, but I would just say, listen to Kurt Cobain, listen to Beyonce. I love I love live hardcore music. I love, love, love live metal music. I love Iron and Wine, you know? Yeah, Sufjan Stevens. Give me some gentle shit, too. So, I love talking. I love, I, love, I love seeing you doing great and feeling you doing great. And uh, to bring it back to the beginning of this, when you were saying that you were in a pretty bad place mentally for a while, depression, all that, doing this Pauline and Juliet thing and helping others, I mean, that has to have lifted you up from that or at least helped and been a huge thing for you. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely is, my is biggest help, passion. Is helping others the, 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 way, the way out of that for you? Was was that a, how big of a part was that versus how big was everything else? I'll say this one thing and then we'll end the, the podcast. Right, let's do it. Um, I think that, let me just think through what I want to say. Because it's, it's important. I think it's important to address, you know. Yeah, I think that it's, if you want to have a good long life, and the a lot of the reason why people develop unhealthy coping mechanisms like alcoholism, which I don't want to speak too much on because I haven't, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic and I haven't experienced that personally. But I think that people fall into those unhealthy coping mechanisms or unhealthy addictions for a lot of reasons, but I think one of those reasons is a lack of purpose in life. And I am somebody who's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly lucky to have found their purpose in life, let alone at such a young age. Like, going to college, uh, people would come up to me and be like, wow, you already know your major, that's incredible. Or you already are literally working in the field that you want to be working in. Um, even being in high school and just people seeing how much I cared about what I was doing. So in that way, I am incredibly lucky to have in my lifetime found my purpose, let alone at such a young age. That's hugely inspirational, by and the I, way. Thank you. And I think that that is very important to a long, mentally healthy and mentally happy life. However, I don't think that that is enough. Um, I think that if I would have just had that, I I wouldn't still be here. And I think that, like I said, not to like be too repetitive... But ultimately for me, my whole life, and I don't ever want to frame activism or nonprofit work as in a negative light or ever say, like, you know, it wasn't for me because a lot of it was selfish. 
but my whole life, not just even in nonprofit, but in all aspects of my life were for other people. It got to a point where I was a secondary character in my own life. I wasn't even the main character of my own life. Every motivation I have, and this is still something I struggle with and talk about in therapy, is like not having internal motivation. All my motivation comes from other people. If I do good in school, it's because I want to make my teachers happy. It's because I want to make my mom happy. It's because I want to make my peers respect me. If I do good in my life, it's all about other people. My relationships in high school, whether they be romantic relationships or friendships, I did things that I knew would make my relationship better or would make my friends happy. I didn't do things for myself. I shrunk myself to make other people feel comfortable. And and then I literally also joined a sector which was all about the people that I helped. And that's how it was framed for me. And if I never found self-love, self-respect, self-worth, all of those buzzwords, if I never found those things, I wouldn't I wouldn't have I wouldn't have prospered. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have anything. And for most of my life, I didn't have that. And so I do think nonprofit is important. I do think it has given me purpose. It has given me passion. It has given me, you know, things in my life that a lot of people would only dream to have in their lifetime. But I don't think it was like my, the thing that saved me. I think that the thing that saved me was finally setting boundaries for myself, finally saying no, finally doing things for myself. And recognizing that I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be respected. Cutting out people in my life who treated me poorly and disrespected me. And setting precedents. And respecting myself. And stop making... I still can be very self-deprecating, but, like, cutting that shit out. And and cutting it out of my friends' lives. And, and as cheesy and overplayed as it is, like, treating myself as I would want to treat other people in my life. You know? And that's really fucking hard. And it's something I'm still working towards. But, um... Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I feel like that's a... Pauline Juliet, check it out. We're going to link it in this podcast. Buy a Death Comes Lifting shirt, basically, is what all that meant. All that important shit can be boiled <laughs> down into, uh, yeah. Buy, consume, buy, consume, consume, consume. Consume, obey. <laughs> Thank you very much for Thank doing you. this. Uh, episode two with you is going to have to be all about uh, vegans, punk rock, and craziness, and all kinds of stories. <laughs> we're, oh, we'll, we'll get into some stories okay. next time. Yeah, I want to talk. We'll get into some fun. I want to talk more, baby Zach. Yeah, I want to talk about some fun our, shit. We have so many great concert stories we have to talk about. Yeah, this well, we laid down the series. We laid down the groundwork. Episode yeah. two, we'll be back. We got the the professional. The return. Yeah. Of the lifting dead. I'm hitting end on this. I love right. you. Goodbye.